This is RebelNet Radio, and this is Joe Spalatro coming at you solo today. It was decided that it was probably very appropriate to talk about this date 30 years ago, when on April uh, 2nd, 1990, UNLV won its only national championship. Um, a lot of this is going to be going from my memory, which isn't the strongest, but I, I think I think a lot of it I remember because I remember it so fondly. But um, you know, flying at it solo today, it might be a little bit choppy. What I'd like to do is um, maybe, you know, go back, set it up a little bit, and talk about leading up to the championship, and then maybe go through the the season a little bit, talk about some of the things that happened and what it was that enabled UNLV to finally get over the hump and be, well, I guess they're the only team in the last 30 years to have won a national championship and be from a non-power conference, which says a lot about the job Coach Tarkanian did. Um, it, it was a program that was built. It wasn't a flash in the pan. Uh, it, it takes a lot. You're, you're taking on the establishment, and you're kind of overthrowing them. But anyway, I wanted to go back and, and look at those times, look at Las Vegas a little bit, and, um, you know, just sort of get it off of my chest a little bit because it is a, a sincere, you know, prideful time of my life I think it's it's a time when uh UNLV fans all walked with a you know a little bit taller with their chest puffed out a little bit and we've been since pummeled to the ground and never to come close to realizing that success again but still it is something that we have and it is something that a lot of longtime fans um still hold near and dear so hopefully what will happen is you know some of the old time fans that have you know remember it fondly hopefully this stirs up some good memories for them and they could smile a little bit and just think back and for the newer fans that have come along maybe it'll you know show you a little bit about what happened and maybe you can understand a little bit why some of our fans um s still have expectations that are probably much higher than you and probably much higher than what is realistic um but before we get into all that um you know, I hope everybody out there is being safe. Uh, I don't, I don't want to get too much into this because um, it's probably one of the reasons you're listening to this is to get away from the nonstop news and being inundated with everything with the virus. But um, I hope everybody's healthy, taking care of each other, being safe, being kind, and being patient and just seeing this thing through. Uh, we will get through it. Um, you know, um, I, I'm one of those that's a little bit more at risk because um, – my trade is I, I'm a laboratorian. I work at St. Rose Hospital in the laboratory. So I'm playing around with the blood of many patients on an hourly basis. So um, I suspect at some point I'm going to get it. I don't know whether I will or not. But um, even if I do, I'm I'm pretty comfortable. I you know I I think this thing everything will be okay. So just keep looking out for one another. You know all the rules. Be safe. Keep your distance. Wash your hands. Please don't touch your face. That's one of the biggest things right there, and um, I hope everybody's okay. Now, um, one of the reasons, well, 
a few of the reasons why I decided to do this. T.E. Parker and I, we back in January, we talked about this and we said, yeah, let's do it. And, um, you know, you know, we need to do it. It's important. Let's let's talk about it. And it's after the season. It'll give us some filler, but it's deserving of, of its own podcast. That was part of it. But, you know, with the social distancing now, I don't want to be anywhere near that guy. He's a dirty person anyway. So, but no, I mean, he can't be here. We're, we're being pretty strict with the whole social distancing thing. I'm either at work or at home, um, maybe with a quick stop for some supplies. But um, that was one reason. Um, another reason is about a month ago, maybe, I stopped in at the studios and talked with Ron Futrell. Um, you can listen to his podcasts. Um, he's he's sports for Channel 8, and he's got all sorts of uh, podcasts up, and he's got a great archive of videos, um, newscast videos from the 90s and before that and after that. He's, he's, he's got some gold there really. And, you know, we, I didn't, I knew we were going to talk rebel basketball, but I wasn't exactly sure what we were going to do. Um, I think Ron has a, um, a, a respect because I've been there through thick and thin. I mean, um, as many of you know, I think I, I'd have to count to be exact, but I think, um, with UNLV's last loss of the season, I think I finished up maybe my 708th straight home game without missing any games. That's not including exhibitions and all that kind of stuff. It's just home games. But I, I've, I've seen the rise. I've seen the fall. I've paid very close attention, especially had, you know, my finger on the pulse a little bit more behind the scenes for the last 20, 22 years, I'd say. Um, so, you know, I went in there and... I, we planned on doing like a half hour segment and it ended up going much over that. And so he's cutting it up into many segments. It's, it's one of those things you get rambling on about something that you have pride in something that you feel like, you know, and it's almost like sitting at the bar with a friend and having a few beers. And you know, the next thing you know, you look up and it's four hours later. So, um, you know, and talking with Ron, it just, it brought back some memories and you're going to want to listen to his podcast because his, his podcasts are about the rise and the fall. So he covers this subject with, um, many different people from a fan perspective, which was me from players, from coaches, administrators, um, prominent people in the city. So he, he, he wanted to get a good chronicle of what it was like during the rise and the fall of the rebels. So I, if I were you guys, if you guys like podcasts, um, you know, you might want to go ahead and give those a listen. Um, another reason is every, everybody's holed up right now and looking for things to do and, and be creative and find some relaxation with no sports being on television or anything like that. So people are trying to grab onto things. And uh, so I thought, you know what, let's just do this. Some people listen to it. Many of them, just won't and that's okay too and even more than that um i felt that uh, people aren't going to like this but i just feel like unlv does not like recognizing very much from the past i mean yeah they retired tarkanian court and they got the statue so i mean there are portions of of UNLV that, you know, they will do it, but it's it's almost like it's forced. It feels like there's no pride in what was accomplished. I mean, you may get it on an individual basis with some people at UNLV, but as a university as a whole, I just have a feeling they just wish the last, you know, that whole Tarkanian era didn't exist. 
and there was no standard and that you know we could just fly under the radar and everybody be happy with what's laid out in front of them so that UNLV really I mean they may come out with something now in retrospect because um, I mean there's been some you know some, a little bit of outcry about them doing nothing or not recognizing it so I suspect they'll put some things out there here and there maybe to celebrate the 1990 championship but I, I feel it's you know that they would kind of rather ignore it I feel like it's something that I just kind of have to do so you know I mean those are some of the reasons why we're doing this today I guys I have no idea how long this is going to go on because I'm just going to ramble and I'll try not to go off on too many tangents I'll try to keep it I don't know somewhat linear um, that's not always easy but that's what I'm gonna try to do all right so I think, um, you know, I, the first thing is we really need to go back and and look and see what, you know, Las Vegas was like back then, what the United States was like back then, just to get some sort of a, we all know it was 1990, but, you know, what was going on in 1990? It's, it's you know, you could say the words 1990 and, and it may not ring any bells in terms of what time frame that actually was, because it was so long ago. First of all, Las Vegas. Um, back then, man, Las Vegas was on the brink of a major transformation. It was, it was just beginning to happen, but it hadn't happened. It's almost, it, it, it's purely coincidental, but it's almost not ironic that um, as UNLV reached the pinnacle, as the program was at the very top, Las Vegas was kind of at the end of old Vegas and as UNLV fell over the next couple decades um, corporate Las Vegas grew it like I said it's purely coincidental but um it does explain a little bit I think of um, you know one of the factors why UNLV's had some trouble achieving some success I mean they've kind of fallen in the background um, you know the more corporate you become the you know, and now with professional sports here within the last few years, it's in, it's no longer Vegas's team. I mean, that's a lot of it's UNLV's fault, but um, a lot of it is the city, the changes within the city. But back then, you have to realize there were, I mean, th this is how long ago it was. Um, Green Valley High School, which has been around a while, it w wasn't even open yet. There, the, the original high schools were the only ones that were open, like Valley, Chaparral, Basic, Gorman, um, El Dorado, Rancho Clark, I think maybe Western and Bonanza. Those were the only schools in the Valley back then. Um, that, that'll give you an idea of the size, because I, I really don't know the, you know, what the borders of, I don't want to say city limits were, but what the borders of civilization really were in Las Vegas back then. I do know that... Um, you know, heading south, um, I had a cousin that lived on Pebble, and I had a coach that lived on Serene, and I'm telling you what, it was way the hell out there. I mean, it was in the middle of the desert. There were very few houses. Where I live now, which is basically an anthem, I, I'd go north of here to shoot my guns in the desert because you were so far outside of civilization. There was plenty of room, and you were allowed to shoot I think you were allowed to shoot guns back then. I'm not sure, but we did anyway. But um, obviously now, um, you know, that's major 
metropolitan area. I mean, it's it just expanded. And, and Summerlin, I think ground just broke in 1990 with maybe the first or second community in Summerlin. It, it was it was an idea that, you know, that became realized within the next decade. But it really wasn't there. Um, you could go into casinos and, you know, it didn't matter what casino you really went into. Um, Vegas was a different type of town back then. If you sat down at a blackjack table with 20 bucks and you played dollar blackjack and you lasted a couple hours just playing for fun or whatever, you know, um, you know, the pit boss would come over to you and he'd give you a comp for dinner either to the buffet or, or, I mean, it wasn't like to, to the five-star steakhouse or anything like that, but they valued the customer. They wanted you to come back. So, um, you know, the drinks were quick to come and, and the food, they, they just, they just kept you happy. I mean, it was very, very customer oriented back then. And now obviously it's, you know, we got to pay it. Locals have to pay to park. Um, now it's a money gouge, the whole city. It's, it's just Vegas was a different, very different city, and uh, I'm guessing the population around then was probably 300,000, 400,000, probably a quarter, maybe a fifth of what Vegas is today. So, I mean, UNLV was was very much a community program. Everybody felt like they had a a piece of it. And the team, they absolutely embraced the hell out of the fans here. They made the fans feel special. It was it was a very symbiotic relationship. It, it it really was a city and a team as one. And, and it's beautiful to see because you don't always see that. And we haven't seen that here. We've seen it, you know, the, the nights have been fantastic and great. And um, it's given the city a lot to rally around. And especially in that first year, um, you know, coming on the heels of the tragedy. Uh, I think they did a wonderful job um, with this city. And, and, and that's kind of similar to the way the fans felt about the rebels back then, but it was it was more concentrated. It was more intense back then because the city was smaller. So it was like, you know, it, the whole city embraced it. You couldn't go anywhere without seeing rebel sweaters, rebel shirts, rebel hats. You know, a big old ugly hat with a gigantic shark protruding out of the forehead. It was everywhere. The conversations at work. At, at UNLV itself, um, in the grocery store or convenience store, it didn't matter where you were. Everybody had something to say about the Rebels. They truly were the pride and joy of this city. And, um, y you know, it's it, it was it was a different time. It was a neat time. I have great memories of it. Part of it's because of the, uh, obviously a big part of it, that's why I'm talking today, is the national championship. But um, also fond memories of the time in the city itself. Um even though it was going through that transition, I think I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Mirage was the first. Yeah, the Mirage I think was the first uh, resort, N not just a casino. It was a resort, a mega resort, um, where they offered just a number of things under one roof, and that opened I think around Thanksgiving of 1989. And then the next one was the Excalibur, and I think that came in the late spring or early summer after UNLV won the national championship. So that that's what I mean. It was it was a time where Vegas was changing because obviously they went full force ahead with the resort style here in Las Vegas, fully corporate. 
Um, some other things that were happening. Um, I, I, I don't. I'm sure a lot of people remember this because on an individual basis, he was a lot of pride and joy for Las Vegas too. Um, Andre Agassi. He was he was young, but he was starting to make his mark and he was starting to climb the ladder and had a lot of backing here in Las Vegas. Him and, and his Rebel EOS camera. The commercials were everywhere. Um, yeah, he he was starting to explode on, on on the scene. So I mean, to give you some time frame, that that's where Vegas was. The you know Nintendo was huge, but I think Game Boy just came out back then, and everybody was just jumping on that bandwagon. Um, I did have to print some things up because my memory, like I said, it's it's not the best. I, one thing that my memory is really strong with is um, music. I could I can always place music around a time frame of my life um when a song was popular i you know there's certain places i could tell you i was and i'm sure of it i don't know why my brain has that kind of wiring but it's it's very bizarre and um you know um i, I know some of the songs that were um popular back then i, I really remember millie vanilli being popular with girl you know it's true and blame it on the rain you know they 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 won the award and then it was taken away for the lip syncing and all that. Janet Jack, Janet Jackson was huge. I, I remember things like Escapade. Um, and and I, I picture myself because I was a student back then. I picture myself on campus just looking for a parking spot and having the radio cranked up. I typically listen to rock and roll, but you know, some of the, you know with only a few stations, sometimes you couldn't escape pop music. Um, Paula Abdul was big. Vanilla Ice with Ice Ice Baby was huge. Um, Two other songs that stick out to me um, as being very popular during the time was uh, Black Velvet by Alana Miles and um, that uh, Sinead O'Connor, Nothing Compares to You. The, those That was the time frame 30 years ago that we're looking at. Um, the 49ers beat the Broncos in the Super Bowl that year. Cincinnati sw swept the A's. It, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a really good year for sports in terms of competitiveness. I know, I know the... I'm trying to think who played in the national championship in college football, but it was tight. It was a one or two score game, I believe. But the Pistons crushed the Blazers, which was, you know, the, that that was the end of that mini Piston dynasty um, that was taken over by the Bulls and, and their incredible run with, with Jordan with all those championships. And by the way, people um, – I hate Jordan, and I don't care. He is the GOAT. The uh, LeBron's no. LeBron is absolutely no Jordan. And that's just for a few of the fans that I argue with on the site a lot about, um, especially you, Jimmy. Um, so some of the, th you know, uh, on TV, um, Roseanne was starting up and was becoming big. Um, Cosby was kind of winding down. Cheers was winding down. Uh, America's Funniest Home Videos just started up. Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, here, here this. I had to look the movies up. I wasn't even sure what movies because I'm not much of a moviegoer. But Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Batman, Lethal Weapon 3, and Home Alone were, were uh, the most popular movies around that time. On TV, The Simpsons just started up, which... Um, you know, I, I remember that fondly because when UNLV won the national championship, there were all sorts of off-market T-shirts all over the city being sold, you, you know, stuff that didn't have the right licensing. And I, I still have an old shirt of about a six-foot-two Bart Simpson. Um, 
dunking a basketball. I can't remember what it says in the short, but man, it is absolutely ugly. And I couldn't put it on anymore. I mean, the thing wouldn't fit me and it's so old. It would probably split. It would be like the Hulk, except I'm not built like the Hulk. So, but it, um, the Simpsons were huge. Twin Peaks was pretty big. Um, in the city, I mean, some people remember this. Um, I do remember the some of the. I, I had just turned twenty twenty one, maybe at that time. And you guys know, for anybody that's been here long enough, it wasn't too difficult to get into bars being underage back then. Uh, I mean, you you could use a typewriter and type on your student ID over the lamination and, and get into some of these bars around UNLV. But um, Tramps was obviously. Um, a big one, Carlos Murphy's, which then later became Moose McGillicuddy's, but Carlos Murphy's, Sneakers, Stakeout. Some some people remember the Mets. I don't remember how long the Mets was around for, but it was around there during the national championship. I remember that. The Shark Club, Turkanians, and the place I used to go the most, and it seemed that um, it seems like most UNLV students went to the sports pub. The sports pub was kind of like, I'd say it was the Walmart of college bars it was because it was always so packed the beer was lukewarm they just couldn't keep it cold enough for you and it was always packed and there was never a seat and it was only shoulder to shoulder people and again that was one of the places where everybody was talking the rebels um the team really did own the town and the town really did own the team um it was just it, it was a different time it was a different place um, but that's that's kind of where it was. So UNLV, in terms of um, importance to the city, it it was it was at, you know I, I'd have to say in terms of sports, obviously it was at the top. Um, but just as an entity, it was still I, I can't think of anything that was like more important to more people in the city than the Rebels. I mean, now if you look at if you look at it now, there there's there's just so much in this town, not even with sports teams. There's just, but between big concerts and events and, and, and the sports teams, it's just like UNLV in terms of uh, where they are on the list of what's important in Las Vegas now, you know, might be number 20 is what it might be mentioned. I mean, people, you know, you've seen the difficulty UNLV's had the last couple decades and, and aside from a couple little spikes, um, with NCAA tournament appearances, the the crowds have been pretty um, meager, especially in comparison. And um, like I said, it was just a really different time for those fans that are young. I, I'm really sorry. I, I I really am sorry that um, you didn't get to witness it firsthand um, because it was truly special. I mean, I feel the same way about kind of like I didn't, even though I idolized on paper players like Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, I'm a Yankee fan, Joe DiMaggio, Lou Gehrig. Um, you know, all I could see is some grainy black and white film, but I didn't get to live it. And and um, in that same sense, you guys really didn't get to live the city. And for, for that, you, you know, that that's that's unfortunate because I think it's, it is what makes a lot of us 40 years old plus fans that – happen to still be around, which I don't think there are a lot of us. Um, it's why we have such pride and we, and we have those expectations and we want to see it back because we know that it can be done. Now, realistically, 
it can't be done. Um, it was a special time. It was a special place, and it was a very, very, very special coach who had a one-track mind, and he backed down from nothing, and it was he was going to do it, and nobody was going to stop him. And I think, you know, the, the, the legend of Tark has, in my mind, has only grown over the years because I see how difficult it is for anybody to put anything together. And I brought this up on Ron Futrell's show. I, you know, he asked me, you, you know, about why, why UNLV failed, um, or, you know, why administratively is, had, did UNLV become so weak? And I came up with a little bit of a different theory, one he hadn't heard before, but I, I think, you know, UNLV, other than Rothermel, um, who was the athletic director under Tarkanian, I, UNLV's never been strong across the board administratively, whether it's athletic directors, presidents, usually both of them have been weak. So my theory is kind of like UNLV's always been weak at the top. It's never been, it's, it's never been a good support system for athletics. I just think that Tarkanian and his coaching staff were so good that they were able to overcome it. Um, that these coaches since Tarkanian haven't isn't, I mean, it's not fair to hold into that standard because what Tarkanian did was incredible. I, I think he hid, he, I wouldn't even say he hid, but he over, because it wasn't hidden because we saw, saw it all unfolding in front of our eyes, the pettiness, the academics versus athletics, the hidden cameras and all that garbage. So it wasn't hidden. I just think Tark was so strong and he built such a strong program that he was able to overcome it and overshadow it. Only his ouster completely ripped off the mandate and showed how completely inept UNLV is. Um, I don't care. You guys know me. I, I kind of call it like I see it. Whether I'm right or wrong, it's, it, you know, my opinions, I, I don't hide them. But, um, you know, special time, special place, like I said. Um, man, I, I wish I could go back. I, I One regret I do have looking back is... And it probably has a lot to do with the age, you know, 2021. 20, um, I felt like it was God given. Like this is what we deserved and it was going to be there forever. So even though it made me happy when we won and when, while we were dominating for that stretch of years, um, I don't know that I fully appreciated it. Not as much as I should have at least. And, um, you know, now Monday morning quarterbacking is very easy. Now that I look back, um, yeah, I should have appreciated it more. Um, it, like I said, the, those moments don't come off. And unfortunately, I, you know, I, it's nothing against any of the coaches we've had since or Otzelberger now. It's just, it seems like a complete pipe dream in that it would take a fluke to get any type of that success, like a, like a Loyola Chicago or George Mason or, or, you know, something like that. It would take an absolute fluke to get back there, even for one year. Um, Tarkanian was able to do it for, what was it, three Final Fours in four years? Uh, that's amazing. That, that shows you the strength of a program. Um, so that's kind of what Las Vegas was like back then. And, um, you know, now, now I think what we need to talk about is the um, precursor team to the national championship. I think that that's important. Um, you know, the the 1988-89 Rebels, they, they weren't, you know, they, they weren't the greatest team, but 
you know, going by today's standards, they were very good. It was a team that featured, I believe, only two seniors. Clint Rossum, who was a uh, Las Vegas kid, who was a JC transfer from Dixie Junior College, I believe. He was a senior. He was a backup guard. Um, you know, um, he he got minutes. He played. And, and the other one, I think, was Keith James. And Keith James was more of a role player further down on the bench. And I don't want to say he was insignificant, but he, he wasn't, you know, a big part of what UNLV was trying to accomplish that year. Um, I think he was on that team. Anyway, uh, so the, that team itself, they, they had some good wins. They, they were ranked much of the season. In fact, that there was times when in early season where they were ranked in the top 10. So it's not like it was a team without talent. It, But it was a team that was very, 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 Inexperienced, I guess, is the best way to put it, because it, it was first years for many players, actually. David Butler and Moses Scurry, they, they were junior college transfers, so it was their first year of Division One ball. It was Greg Anthony's first year. He wasn't a, he, um, I mean, he had basketball under his belt at Portland State, or Portland, or Portland's Portland, at Portland. Um, but it was his first with UNLV, and he was kind of transitioning from going from a shooting guard to a point guard, which was a bit of an experience and obviously a good gamble for UNLV in the end because um, Greg had a lot of two-guard qualities to his game and he ended up becoming the best point guard that we ever had. Um, Stacy Augman was only a sophomore. Um, Anderson Hunt was a freshman. Um, George Ackles was another junior college transfer from Garden City. Um, so it, it was a team that was... In terms of, I like to use the term, um, you know, um, seasons of experience, you know, by the entire team. And when you look at the D1 experience team-wide, it was very low. But they, they still competed. I mean, all Tark teams competed. And, um, you know, I remember Anderson Hunt, who ended up, um, it, it was funny. I mean, he, he won the Final Four Most Outstanding Player against Duke with his amazing three-point shooting and just, you know, the whole team played great. But Anderson Hunt won the uh, most outstanding player in that Final Four. But as a freshman, I loved Anderson Hunt. I mean, as a freshman, he he put up good numbers. I mean, you know, he averaged 12 points and four assists a game, and he was he was solid defensively, and he became much, much, much better defensively as he got older. But I still remember um, – I don't want to say I wasn't a fan of his early – I was, but he frustrated me because there was a stretch during that season where, um, you know, there were a couple games where, and they were big games, and, and UNLV, you know, they, they tended not to lose home games back then. I know it's commonplace now, but um, there was back-to-back -back games where Anderson Hunt just had blunders, absolute blunders at the, the end of the game, and I remember swearing at him. And just being aggravated. The first one was, um, I think it was Stacy King's huge 48-point game at the Thomas and Mac. UNLV was playing Oklahoma. Oklahoma was no slouch. They they were ranked number four in the country, so it was a big game. It was a tough game. It was a tight game. And um, late in the game, there might have been less than a minute left. I'm not sure about how much time was left, but um, UNLV had a chance to tie. And uh, I recall Anderson Hunt getting the ball. I think he was on the wing and he went to throw it back to the point 
and the ball was picked off by Mookie Blaylock. And he went uncontested for a score, and it kind of ended up being the margin of victory. And it was tough because um, I, I didn't see UNLV lose much at home at all. It, it was something that just didn't happen. Like I said, we, we probably lost more games at home last year. Certainly under the Menzies years, we lost more games in one season than Tark lost at the Thomas and Mack period. So, you know, it, it didn't sit well with me, and, and I was frustrated. And it's like, okay, well, we'll get that one out of the way. It was number four team. We lost it. It's okay. But then we go down, um, I think it was, it was Irvine. Yeah. And the game was a little bit different back then with, with the way the clock worked. Um, back then after makes, the clock kept ticking. And UNLV was down three late in the game. And Anderson had the ball inside of 10 seconds left. And, and uh, Irvine played up tight on him. They didn't want to give up the three-pointer to tie it. And, of course, Anderson blows by his man, gets into the lane, lays it up. And UNLV has no timeouts left. UNLV's down one point. Irvine just sits with the ball out of bounds. They didn't even have to inbound it because UNLV had no timeouts and the clock didn't stop after timeouts. And so then UNLV lost another heartbreaker. So at that point, I was, you know, I had every word in the book for Anderson Hunt about being, um, you know, this, that, or the other, you know. And, um, you know, little did I know at that time uh, he would become kind of the hero on the season with a single shot. But before they got to the NCAA tournament, obviously, as they always did, UNLV um, won back then. It, it was the Big West, and um, they won the conference with ease. They always happened to do that. And it's part of the reason why Tark was able to play such a tough non-conference season, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's because um, he pretty much knew that even with the losses against the good teams, it was going to make the Rebels better and that they were always going to have that auto bid by winning the, the, the conference tournament. Um, but UNLV was always an at-large team, so they really never needed to win the tournament. Um, that particular season that we're talking about, the precursor year, 1988-89, UNLV was ranked in the top 20 for the whole season. Now, they faded because there, there was a series of late losses. Two of them were the ones I just talked about. You know, they faded into the, the higher teens late in the season. And back then, I think there was only a top 20. I don't even think there was a top 25. It may have been top 20. I don't know exactly when... when you know, they switched it out to 25 and then 30. Now, who knows, 40 now, you know, participation trophies. Everybody gets some sort of recognition. So UNLV wins the conference. They roll through the conference tournament. You know, they got a little bit of a test against New Mexico State in the, in the, um, in the final in, uh, at Long Beach Arena. But they won it, and obviously then they get to head to the NCAA tournament. In the tournament, um, you know, UNLV – Earned a four seed, I believe, in, in their first two rounds. You know, they, they didn't, it wasn't too difficult. I mean, they, they double digited Idaho and then they did the same to DePaul. They, they really smoked DePaul. And um, it set up a date with Arizona, who's the number one team in the conference. They were the number one of the number one seeds. They were the favorite to win it all. They had the national player of the year in uh, Sean Elliott, who, um, had a good game. Stacy did all he could, and Stacy actually defended him really well. It got physical. Um, it was just a real good nip and tuck game. And and quite honestly, I I thought UNLV had no chance in that game. I know Tarkanian did because he always felt feels like they have a chance. But um, 
it just seemed like they were way too experienced and they were just flat out. They had more talent than UNLV did. Um, but UNLV, f I mean, they fought and clawed and, um, it was, um, it was a great game and it, obviously it came down to the wire. There wasn't a lot of scoring in the last couple minutes. It was just a bunch of great defensive plays. Um, that there were blocks. Uh, it, it was just, it, it became all defense. It was, it was tight. It was tied. And then Anderson Hunt threw up an air ball, um, probably with about two minutes to go. And Arizona turned it into a fast break. A, uh, actually, it was a breakaway fast break. Easy layup for Kenny Lofton. And um, God bless his heart. I mean, this, as much as coming back from the jaw injury the following year, which we'll talk about at great length because it was a pivotal point in the championship season. But Greg Anthony chased him down out of nowhere and blocked Lofton's shot. Um, unfortunately, UNLV didn't have any other trailers, and Mulebach picked up the ball and put it in to give um, Arizona what would be their final lead of the game at, I think, 67 to 65 with about two minutes left. But on a particular play, Greg ran so hard, and he extended late to block the shot. It was a tremendous block shot off the backboard. But when he came down, I remember how badly his ankle coiled on the padding of the basket, um, you know, on the ground. It caught right above the ground, and his knee just, or his uh, ankle just completely tweaked. And Greg immediately grabbed his ankle, and he rolled while he was out of bounds. Um, for Greg not to get up, you know that it was a bad sprained ankle. It was a severe sprained ankle. In fact, it took him out for the rest of the game because Clint Rawson came in. Uh, for the Rebels at that point to finish out the game because there was just no way uh, Greg could move. And, um, you know, so UNLV trailed 67-65 um, with under two minutes to go. And then, well, UNLV had the last possession, and then that's when it happened. Rawson, the three-point player. Now they have eight seconds to go, and Hunt will try for a three and hit to the basket. Timeout, two seconds to go. Wow, I ain't gonna lie. Anytime I watch that, hear it, it still gives me goosebumps. It was such a big shot. It put UNLV into the lead eight. We beat the number one team in the country with the number one player in the country. And it didn't feel like you know he was headed for you know an ultimate season, a special season. It felt like a big underdog beat the favorite um and it felt like that's all the season would be and as it turned out, that's all it ended up being uh UNLV was trounced pretty good by Seton Hall in the elite eight, but um you know it, it you, you can't justify a twenty point loss and say we could have won. That's that's very difficult, but I think UNLV was emotionally spent. There was only one day in between games. Um, I think the excitement of beating Arizona just it, it it made for a letdown. I UNLV was a little bit slow defensively. They weren't sharp. Um, Seton Hall was very very experienced, but you know a big key was even though Greg Anthony played the next game because he's as tough as nails. He's as tough as they get. He was hobbled. He wasn't. He he did lead the team in scoring but he was defensively he was uh a step slow and greg was as everybody remembers greg was a tremendous defender and pressure on ball for a man-to-man -man defense is the most critical 
point to have the pressure and Greg just wasn't there and seen, you know, a lot of things broke down. It wasn't just, you know, Greg's injury. It was a lot of things. And ultimately UNLV lost. Um, but it was, it was still an exciting season. It, it, it felt good. And, you know, it's, it, at that moment, did it seem like UNLV was going to have a chance at a national championship the following year? Um, well, they lost only two seniors with uh, Rossum and Keith James. And then, let's see. I mean, you signed Larry Johnson. That was it. That was the big signing, Larry Johnson. And... Obviously, back then, we really, as fans, you really had no clue. All you can do, there was no internet. There was, you know, Sports Center really wasn't going to get into all that and to recruiting and stuff. So, you, you know, you either subscribed to a recruiting newsletter or you got Blue Ribbon Magazine and you read on it. Or you read some new local um, newspaper guys who would get tidbits from coaches or, or whatever for their information. But it, it never was with their eyes because the AAU tournaments weren't exploding in Las Vegas back then. So um, the information was, you know, we got this really good player. He was the JUCO National Player of the Year. He was a McDonald's All-American before that. And UNLV actually kind of got a little bit lucky to get Larry because, um, you know, he signed with SMU. But SMU was coming off the heels of, uh, you know, the football scandal. And when his test scores were questioned, SMU just said, you know, hell with it. Go elsewhere. They didn't want to deal with it. And Larry was wide open, and I think he was – it was between UNLV and Kansas, but then I think Kansas had a coaching change. And um, I think that's right, and that made it a little bit easier because Larry and Stacy had played before together, and it just – I don't want to say UNLV got lucky to get him. I mean, there was no better place for Larry than UNLV. Uh, God, the style and all that. But once we signed him, I think um, everybody started to feel like um, – the following year was going to be a legitimate chance for at least a Final Four for UNLV. National championships are hard to predict. You can't just um, go out and say it. It was easier to say the following year when the whole team pretty much returned, and we didn't do it. So the feeling was good. The vibes were high, but everybody kind of wanted to see Larry Johnson. Uh, what exactly does this guy bring to the team? How much better is he going to make us? Um are we going to roll through the competition? Is is it going to be easier? You know, the thing was, the optimism was as high as I recall it ever being. And, you know, we really didn't get our first glimpse of um, Larry Johnson until UNLV played an exhibition game against an absolute powerhouse, to tell you the truth. I mean, usually exhibition games are really easy, but UNLV played the Soviet national team. A team that was coming off, I believe they came off gold um, in 88. I know they um, beat the USA, and that was the last year that the USA played with the amateurs. In fact, Stacey Ogman was on that team, that team that was coached by John Thompson. And um, they were a power. I mean, they, they had some players, and it was going to be, believe it or not, it was going to be one of them. Um, you know, these tougher games on the slate, not, I mean, you know, we played a lot of ranked teams and all the other games have more meaning than an exhibition game. But this was, I mean, the, the crowd was packed. The game was put on national TV. I believe it was on ESPN. I mean, ESPN covering an exhibition game. It was very hyped and it was very cool to 
because usually you sort of you know sink your teeth into a season and you, you you absorb it as it goes and it builds as it goes but this one just kind of started with a blockbuster early and um you know i i you know that national team uh, they i know they had Shrunas Marshallonis and and Kurt Nitus and and Volkov i think i i don't remember if Sabonis believe it or not i can't recall whether he played in that game or not or if he was missing you know because of some either an injury or some Soviet rules or some crap like that, because he was one of the best players in the world that nobody knew about at that time. Um, yeah, but they, they did, they won gold in 88 and USA won the bronze. Um, so, I mean, if, if the best accumulation of juniors and seniors in the nation or best players in the nation couldn't beat this team, it would be really hard for a team that had just been practicing for a month to beat this team. And um, But it, it was an exciting game. I remember that in UNLV 1, I think 107-102, I believe. It, it was a high-scoring game. And I remember coming away from that. I don't remember what Larry Johnson's stats were, and I do remember he was impressive. But what stood out even more than how impressive he was was how out of shape he was. Larry got winded in that game so badly, and it was obvious that um, he was not in game shape, and it was hard to tell whether, you know, he was the type of player that would be in game shape, um, you know, because he was such a big, wide body. You just didn't know if he was the type of guy that could give you 35 minutes a game if it was needed. It, it looked like he might just be one of those guys that had a low gas tank. But, of course, it got better as the year went on, and he got stronger. But um, it, it it was an impressive win. It was a fun win. Um you know that that the roster that year it was, man, what a what a messed up year. George Ackles, who was a junior on the uh, team the year before that beat Arizona, he broke a bone in his wrist, so he was out for the season. And Moses Scurry and David Butler, our other big guys, um, they were seniors, but they were both academically ineligible. They they screwed up and um, they had to sit out until the second semester started, which which came about eight games in. And so you know, they typically, uh, it, well, they did. They started, uh, you know, Greg Anthony as a junior, and Anderson Hunt was a sophomore then, and Stacy Ogwin was a junior, Larry was a junior, and then they had James Jones, another Juco player at center. And James Jones, you, you know, for, for what he was expected to do, the shoes he was expected to fill, he, he did fine, but, I mean, the guy was a backup, backup center, pretty much. Um, you know, more of a ninth man, tenth man type that was, you know, called to start. Thankfully, you know, those other four guys were the types of guys that could grab a lot of rebounds and score some points. But, um, but not having Butler and Scurry, it it hurt you and I'll be early. And what we're gonna, what I'm gonna try to do is um, go not necessarily game by game, but highlight some of the important games during the regular season. Um, and you know, work work our way towards NCAA tournament and see how all that went. So obviously, UNLV was expected to do some big things. Is the preseason number one? They returned about ninety percent of their scoring and rebounding from the Sweet Sixteen team of the year before that that um, beat Arizona and, and lost to um, Seton Hall in the lead eight. Uh, UNLV only lost two players: senior Clint Rossum, who was a backup guard, and Keith James, who didn't play very much. So, they, you know, just plugging in Larry Johnson, it was pretty obvious. They were, they were expected to have a big year. And um, 
the rest of the roster, um, you had David Butler, who was going to return as a senior. He was a JUCO um, All-American uh, out of Washington, D.C. He had to sit out the first half of the season due to academic ineligibilities. And um, along with Moses Scurry, who was a backup power forward, basically, um, he, he was a good friend of David Butler's and JUCO, and he played a key member on that 90, uh, 1990 team. Obviously, Larry Johnson. Anderson Hunt was returning as a sophomore guard after an up-and-down freshman season, but one that ended on the highest of notes with that three-pointer against Arizona that we played the clip. Um, Greg Anthony was a junior. Um, other other key players, you, you had Travis Bice who came off the bench, and he, he was nothing but a three-point specialist, probably the skinniest player UNLV's ever had, but he could really, really, really shoot the ball. And that, that was the only thing he could do. Didn't defend, didn't rebound, didn't. He was just in there to, if he was going to come in there and play 10 minutes, you were hoping he would get four shots, uh, four three-pointers. They'd always be three-point attempts. And you'd hope he'd hit two of them, which which he usually did. He, he I believe he set the um, season record for three-point accuracy for the Rebels that year. Um, or if not, he was right up there. Um who else did we have? Um, obviously, Stacey Ogman started at, at um, small forward, and he, he was a junior. Barry Young was another shooter out of Baltimore. He was a junior, uh, small forward, uh, real good shooter. He went about 6'7", so he, he was that prototypical small forward type. The, the game's changed a lot, and positions have become more hybrid. They were a little bit more defined back then. James Jones was a backup center. He started the first half of the 1990 season due to the ineligibilities of Butler and Scurry. And George Ackles, he, he was a little bit of an unfortunate guy because he was on the 1988-89 team that lost to Seton Hall and beat Arizona. But he broke his wrist, and he had to sit out the championship year. He returned the following year for the year where UNLV tried to make some history and fell a little bit short, but he, he, so he, he actually, he was on the team, obviously he was part of the roster, but he didn't, he didn't get to participate um, that year. And it was, it was probably a good thing because both Butler was good enough to start. And so was Ackles. So, um, you know, it wasn't the worst thing, although the following year, it, both him and Almore Spencer were both good enough to start. And uh, so, you know, you know, he was stacked. They they were a well-rounded team. They they had depth everywhere. Um, it was a little bit weak at the point guard. Sianovic was was a senior, so he wasn't the greatest, but he was steady. Um, didn't make a lot of huge plays, but he didn't make a lot of mistakes while he was out there. Not not at least um, when he was a center. And and the lack of a strong point guard uh, the following year really became the Rebels' undoing. And the other player you had was uh, Chris Jeter, who was um, a junior out of San Diego. And he was a little used reserve, big man. Um, he went about 6'8", six, 6'9", six, probably about 215 pounds. And he, he didn't play a lot, but he did have an impact on the season. We'll, we'll get into that. So that pretty much uh, rounds out the team. And, um, you know, they beat the Soviet Union, and, and now it was time for the season to begin. Expectations were high. Everybody was hyped. UNLV was the preseason number one. And the one thing about Tark, he wasn't afraid to play uh, play people. He he would schedule guy, uh, teams at home, 
away. He didn't care. He wanted to challenge his guys. And I do think things like that really helped prepare the team along the way because the Big West wasn't the best conference in the world. It, it certainly was better than most people thought back then, but it wasn't exactly, you know, a power conference. Um, so UNLV started out with the NIT that particular year, and their first game was against Loyola Marymount. Not a lot was known about Loyola Marymount back then. In fact, people probably expected it to be a pretty easy win for the Rebels because Loyola Marymount that early in the season was pretty much a no-name. But as it turned out, that, that Loyola Marymount team was a lot of fun. They didn't defend a lot, but they were such a high-octane offense. They were a high-gambling defense. They gave up a lot of easy points. They, they either forced a turnover and got an easy bucket out of it, or they gave up an easy two or an open three. So it was a feast or famine type of team, and most of the year they feasted. They broke all sorts of NCAA records with their scoring, and that was the first game of the season for the Rebels, the preseason on IT, which was at the Thomas and Mac. What was most memorable about that particular game to me was um, I remember in the later stages of the first half, there was a bomb threat called in, and it delayed the game for several minutes. You know, some people left. Some people were a little bit scared. It wasn't – I mean, it's not every day you have a bomb threat. And um, so it, it was a little – the tension was thick because even though we were 15 minutes in, it was a tight game. UNLV um, ended up – I think they were trailing at the half, actually. It was a close game, and, and it looked like – you know, especially because the style they played, it was so different. Um, UNLV never faced another style like that again until they played Loyola Marymount in the NCAA tournament. And um, UNLV trailed, and, and they ended up taking control in the second half and going on a big run with, you know, some easy buckets. And UNLV ended up pulling away and winning the game by double digits, 10 or 11 points. And um, it was just, um, it, I remember it being a fun game, but anytime you score, you see 200 points scored between two game, two teams in a college basketball game. You know it's going to be some fun. Then UNLV hosted another home game against California. They they smoked California, and with that win, they went on to um, New York for the preseason NIT Final Four. Now, this, this was a stacked tournament because... Um, you know, back then it, it was a little more prestigious than it is even now. Um, when you got to the end, you were playing some top teams, and that's exactly what UNLV did. UNLV had to face um, Kansas, and that was one where UNLV, they they took a thumping. UNLV lost that one by 14 points, and that's that's where it became evident that UNLV was, you know, had some issues on the inside. Issues that would later be solved with the return of both Moses Scurry and David Butler. But UNLV ended up losing that game by 14 points. It may have been the worst. It had to be the worst loss on the season, I, I would believe. So UNLV balanced back in the consolation game and beat DePaul. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the greatest start to the season. But, you know, you lose to a team like Kansas. It's it's on a neutral court. It's It's not the most shameful thing, especially when you're – Losing a starter that that you know contributed some points. It's it's not like David Butler is often the guy that is forgotten on that team just because you know you had Anderson Hunt, Stacey Ogman, and Greg Anthony and Larry Johnson and and David Butler. He he's the man that's forgotten the most. But you know he, if we had a guy today that averaged 16 points and seven rebounds a game, 
he would be a major, major player, and we'd probably be talking, oh, is he going to leave early for the NBA? But that's So he was a major contributor, and even Moses Scurry averaged eight points and four rebounds a game. And so, so between the two of them, you basically had 24 points and 11 rebounds between those two guys, and they were replacing um, James Jones, who averaged only four points and three rebounds per game. So having those two return was going to be a big deal to UNLV. Um, the Rebels were, in their next game, the Rebels were thumped at Oklahoma. Oklahoma was ranked number 12 at the time. Um, you know, he lost the, the point, the game by eight points. Oklahoma became a little bit of a rival back then. They had some great games with Billy Tubbs. It was, it was a fun rivalry. Uh, so was Arizona to a lesser extent because they didn't play quite as much. But Oklahoma was the team. So UNLV started out the season three and two. So I don't, Looking back, I don't remember. No, I was pissed. I was a 21-year-old kid that was knee-jerk and all that. I was, I'm was. i sure I was really pissed. I think there was a couple holes in my bedroom wall after those losses. So there were at least two holes at that point because I didn't expect them to go undefeated. I just didn't like losing. And, you know, I was kind of expecting a Final Four. And it's, I wouldn't say it didn't look like we couldn't make it. It was still early in the season. We still needed to see Butler and Scurry back into the mix. After that... You know, he wins a game against Pacific, and then we had the return of Butler and Scurry against Iowa. That was uh, the game, I think it was right before Christmas. It would have been the end of the first semester. It was a duel in the desert. It was a one of those package games that UNLV played. I believe it was a duel in the desert. And it was Iowa was a good team. UNLV had a little bit of a history with Iowa, uh, tournament history, a couple years prior. They played them two years in a row. Iowa was ranked number 16 in, in the nation, and, and I think that is when I don't remember stats specifically for that game, but I know that we are all happy to have both Scurry and Butler back in the mix, and UNLV just trounced Iowa, beat them by 17 points, scored at will, and it was one of those games where it looked like UNLV was a complete team, and this is going to be more of what led UNLV into the future Um and was going to, you know, the the team that we were going to see make their run and, and do some good things. Now, back then, it's things were so much different with scheduling. Um, UNLV, with the conference season in, in the Big West, there were a lot of interspersed games with just non-conference games. You don't, that doesn't happen often anymore. But back then, UNLV had probably five or six games that were non-conference that took place after conference season actually began. And it seems like all those games were, were just big games. There was there was no no-names in them. UNLV just played some teams. Glancing down at the schedule, UNLV played, let's see, Arkansas at Temple at LSU versus North Carolina State versus Oklahoma State versus Arizona and versus Louisville. Those games all took place after the conference season started. So I think I like it better nowadays where you, you sort of get all your non-conference games out of the way and then you stick with conference from beginning to end. It's it's a bit herky-jerky and you could lose some focus on, you know, the, the top prize of winning the conference. But um, that that's just the way it was. And, um, in fact, I believe UNLV played nine ranked teams out of conference that particular year, which which is astounding. I mean, the only the only way you get that is if you're in a power conference. But Tark, he made sure um, that their schedule was a, as complete as can be, 
And though UNLV took a lot of heat for playing in the Big West, you know, a lesser conference than the Power Five, I don't know that UNLV's schedule was any more easier than any an, an ACC schedule, really, overall, because they play nobody in the non-conference. UNLV had no problem stepping out and playing those teams. After trouncing Long Beach State, UNLV had a home game against Arkansas. Arkansas was ranked number 11 in the, in the nation. Uh, we knew they were good, but they weren't quite the household name they'd become later in the year and the following season. Um, like I said, they were ranked number 11, and they did have Todd Day, Lee Mayberry, Oliver Miller. Um, they're a very good team. But that, I, I remember college basketball wasn't oversaturated on the television like it is nowadays. So I don't know that I saw Arkansas play up until the point we played them. And it was a tight game, and, and UNLV ended up pulling away a little bit and winning by eight points. I mean, the, what I remember the most out of that game was at some point in the second half, Stacy was on a fast break and he split the middle of two defenders at about the free throw line, went behind his back and threw down a tomahawk jam that just went, made Dick Vital go crazy. The Thomas and Mac went nuts. Um, UNLV pulled away with that win over a ranked team and things were starting to look good because UNLV is now at that point, they're sitting at, at seven and two. Um, they were 2-0 in conference. So, you know, a little bit less than according to plan maybe with, with, those losses, even though they were explainable without a complete roster, but UNLV continued. They win. They win their next two easily, as most games were in the Big West, by big double digits, twenty points against Cal State Fullerton, San Jose. But then comes UNLV's a bump in the road. This was at New Mexico State, and UNLV. It, New Mexico State was a team, Neil McCarthy was the coach, and they had a lot of JUCO players. And the thing I remember about New Mexico State is they were extremely tough. They may not have been the best, but they were a tough team and they were tough out. And again, like I said, the Big West got a lot of um, heat for not being a good conference. But I'll tell you what, the one thing about the conference is the venues were nightmares. You know how the when New Mexico, the Lobos are pretty good nowadays and they pack the pit and it's an impact and it's loud. Some of those big West arenas was like that, except they, the, they were little shoebox gyms. They're about half the size, maybe half the size of the pit. Now, maybe a little bit bigger, but they were tiny gyms and the fans were right on top of you. They were hot and sweaty the fans didn't shut up, and at New Mexico State was one of those games. And and I I I, I, I can't forget how badly uh, Larry Johnson felt after that game. In fact, he was in tears. Uh, UNLV had a chance to win the game, and Larry Johnson misfired on a three-pointer at the buzzer. And uh, UNLV dropped the game by a point. Um, I know Larry felt bad. And, you know, it, again, you, you lose a one-point game on the road. It's, it's not the end of the world. Um to a 21-year-old fan, yeah, it was. It was probably my third hole in the wall of my bedroom. But, you know, it, we were still on track for the, the ultimate goal because UNLV was improving as the season went off. We were just coming off, you know, a win over a number 11 team and a win over a number 16 team, so it's not like all was lost. UNLV goes down to Temple they on the road, and they beat Temple on the road. They beat Fresno State, then Irvine, then Long Beach State, and then Santa Barbara. Now, during this time, we haven't even talked about this a little bit. 
it was a tough year for the Rebels. There were a lot of obstacles to overcome. It wasn't it wasn't a traditional season where you have your roster, you might have an injury or two along the way, you overcome the injuries, you grow as a team, you get better, and the obstacles are relatively minor along the course of the season, and you just grow and you become that championship team and you make your run. No, the NCAA, obviously, I'm not going to get real in-depth with um, what was going on with the NCAA, but obviously they were... I wouldn't even say they were investigating the Rebels. They were absolutely hounding the Rebels. They were doing everything in their power to dismantle the Rebels. Um, all but two players had to sit out a suspension that year. The, uh, Dave Rice and Larry Johnson. All the other players were found to have committed minor violations from a long-distance phone call to taking a Snickers bar out of the hotel locker, I mean, out of the hotel uh, mini-fridge and not paying for it immediately. Just little things like that. And what made it worse is it's not like NCAA would come up with a finding and say, this player has to sit out this game. And then you have a couple days to prepare without him. I mean, frequently, players were getting on the plane or even getting off the plane on a road trip game and finding out that they weren't able to play. So it, it was pretty clear that, that the NCAA was trying to throw a wrench in there. They weren't, they were making it more difficult than it even had to be. I mean, the, the crimes were absolutely petty, especially, you know, compared to what everybody else was doing and especially compared to nowadays. But so the NCAA w was throwing those things in, into there and, um, you know, and, and UNLV, and I'll get into this into one of the games coming up a little bit later, UNLV didn't do their, themselves any favors uh, at some points of the season. But anyway, um, so, you know, UNLV is sitting at, at that point, they're at 14-3. and three. Obviously, they're, they're still highly ranked. I believe they were ranked in the top five. In fact, UNLV didn't vary all that much from anywhere from the top seven, I believe, that entire year. I'd have to look that up, but... They they were they never faded out of consideration for a Final Four or a top team. They were always there. It was more of a surprise when they lost a the game than when they even won against a ranked team. So, but then UNLV goes down to Louisiana State. Well, Louisiana State was a very very good basketball team. They had uh, Shaquille O'Neal and they had Chris Jackson. Chris Jackson, you'd later know to be as a hoop Mahmoud. Abdul Raouf, who had a, a long career in the NBA, very good player. He had the, the he was the kid who had the tick a little bit. I think he had Tourette's syndrome, uh, but was a just a electrifying basketball player. And obviously, I don't need to say much about Shaquille O'Neal. Granted, he wasn't the same player as a young kid at LSU as he became in the NBA, where he was absolutely dominant. But he was still absolutely dominant in college basketball, just not to the point that he dominated in the NBA. He was still growing and becoming a player and learning a little bit about touch and things like that. Um, but UNLV went down to LSU, and that was one of those games that where UNLV really got hurt by a late uh, dismissal. I mean, not dismissal, but Stacey Ogman wasn't allowed to play in that game. So you're taking a, an All-American, and you're saying, here, here's a game against a, a good team on the road, and you got to pull the best defensive player in the country out of the game. And UNLV ended up dropping that game 107 to 105. Again, no shame. Um, now, then UNLV returns home. And this game, the next game was against Utah State. This was this was an interesting game, not because the game was close. It was an 
absolute blowout. UNLV won 124 to, to 90. But what happened was with Utah State, the year prior, they had a rookie coach named Con Smith. Utah State wasn't a great team. They were pretty bad, but uh, not, not even pretty bad. They were just mediocre. And in the year prior, UNLV whipped on um, – I'm trying to think exactly what happened. Yeah, UNLV whipped on him, and Con Smith went in the paper, or it was maybe it was a television interview. I can't recall which one it was. As a rookie coach, he really screwed up. He basically said that the Rebels played under a different set of rules than other teams in the league and that the program should be checked for academics, the kinds of cars the players are driving, what summer jobs they might have, whether they go to class or not. And... Um, that stuck with the players. There's no doubt about it. Tark was marvelous at helping develop and cultivate the us versus the them mentality of the Rebels. I really think that was a, a key to them being as good as they were because there was always that solidarity, that unity. It didn't matter whether players got along or didn't get along. They just always seemed to be on the same page with that mentality. So... Utah State comes to town, and UNLV just dismantles them. Um, obviously, with a 30-point lead, everybody's playing at the end of that game. Less than a minute to go. You got all the reserves in there, and there was a little bit of a scuffle under the basket, and I guess some elbows were exchanged between reserve Chris Jeter and Gary Patterson, a, a, a nothing player for Utah State. Play continues on. Final seconds of the game. And under the basket, Jeter delivers a vicious headbutt to Patterson. He cut him good. He got stitches above his brow, bleeding all over the court. They had to pull him off the court. Nobody really saw what happened because you know what it's like when you're in a 30-point win. Most fans are heading out already as it is, and you're certainly not paying close attention. You're just sort of waiting for the clock to hit zero. So not a lot of players saw that. And, um, you know, the game finished, and it, seemed to finish, you know, without that big of a deal. But then the players interacted in the tunnel. And Utah star player Kendall Youngblood basically challenged Chris Jeter. You know, basically, you want to hit him? Go ahead. Hit me. And Chris didn't make him say it twice. Chris hit him with a right cross of, uh, to the jaw. They got into it. And as soon as it happened, it's like everybody was filling. Stacey Ogman flew across court. Everybody, all the players seemed to get into it. And it was it was a regular melee on the court. Um, I remember I was sitting in the front row as a student. Um, you know, we, we got good tickets. They were free. And, and it was first come, first serve. And I'll be damned if I wasn't going to sit out there all night and get my tickets. So I, I remember I got tackled by um, an usher because I tried to go out in the court, which was obviously stupid. I'm a 21-year-old kid, and I was five foot eight and 180 pounds. What am I going to do out there? But, you know, I'm, my blood's always boiling. Like I said, I put a bunch of holes in my bedroom wall with every loss. But um, in the shuffle, um, Moses Scurry, who wasn't dressed for that game because, guess what? He was sitting out due to an NCAA suspension. Um, he grabs... Con Smith and cracks him in the head. And, um, you know, Moses Scurry later claimed that he didn't know it was a coach because, I mean, in a, in a way, Moses has a point because he wasn't dressed like a traditional co uh, coach. You know, most coaches wear suits or something, and he was wearing like a Utah State jersey or something that was pretty nondescript, something really bookwormy. And, and 
But Moses knew it was the coach. Come on, UNLV was gearing up for this game. They were they were boiling on the sideline, and and uh, I'm I'm sure it was intentional. And it was one of the first times I've ever heard UNLV fans have a a, a negative reaction. I remember the next game when 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 Moses finally made his return to the court, which I think he sat out a three game suspension, and Jeter had to sit out a game or two. Um, Moses was actually booed when he was introduced. That for some reason that sticks out to me that he was booed. It wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't like there was eighteen thousand boos coming down, but it was certainly audible enough to where it dominated the cheers. And um, I mean that didn't say much. I, I guess it surprised me a little bit because I believed in the us versus them mentality, and what, whether what you do is right or wrong, you're still on the side of your guys. So I was a little bit upset by what was going on there, but. Um, you know, so, I mean, the bad blood was set up there, and, you know, it it came into play again later in the season when UNLV had to return um, back to Utah State. Now, UNLV, believe it or not, I, they were still in, they were, this doesn't happen often. At that point, after beating Utah State, UNLV was 15-4 and 9-1 and in conference, and I believe that UNLV was in second place in the Big West Conference behind New Mexico. New Mexico beat them when Larry Johnson missed the three-pointer at the buzzer. And UNLV always won conference. They just always won conference. It was simple, and they were going to win the conference tournament. That was pretty much a foregone conclusion. So it was kind of weird that UNLV was trailing. It just, it just it didn't make a lot of sense. Now, UNLV then... After beating Utah State, they rattled off several wins um, in conference, out of conference. They beat North Carolina State. They beat Oklahoma State out of conference. And they beat up on, let's see, Pacific, San Jose State. And then became a game on February 12th, 1990, a home game against Fresno State. And I really think this was the very, very, very pivotal moment of the season, it was, um, I'll honestly say, when this game took place, every hope and dream I had, this is just from a personal standpoint, I don't know how the players felt, or the coaches felt, or the rest of the fans felt, but for me, it felt like UNLV's season had just ended. The most probably irreplaceable part of that team, Greg Anthony, point guard, um, he went in for a layup against Fresno State, and his legs were taken out from underneath him. And Greg, he always went hard, so it's not like he was half-assing it towards a basket. He was going hard, and his legs were taken out, and it he fell in such a way where his hands couldn't break his fall, so Greg came down face first. And I still remember it, it was a sound unlike any I've heard before. It was a dull, sickening thud, and that thud was his chin breaking the impact of the fall it took the full brunt of all the force of that fall and as it turned out um greg anthony shattered his jaw he broke it in two separate places um i know my heart sank um it was just and, and i felt especially bad about that because um a night or two before that game i had my first chance meeting with tarkanian first time i ever met him in, in person he was eating at a family friend's restaurant izzy marion and Izzy knew I was a big fan, and Izzy took me over there to to talk with 
uh, Tark for a moment, and Tark was eating. I didn't want to bug him, and I was just this 21-year-old kid, and I was kind of starry-eyed, and I didn't, you know, I was a little bit embarrassed, a little bit shaken to go over there and see the guy. I met him many times in later years, and, and I was still in awe, but not quite as intimidated. But anyway, I, you know, I sat with him for a moment, and he, he, you know, he had that smile. Tark always has that smile, and he has time for people. And I suppose if I would have started talking basketball, he would have probably put down his fork and talked basketball for the next five hours because that's the type of guy he was. But I remember I felt bad because I wished him luck against Fresno State, and that's what came to mind when Greg broke his jaw. I was like, did I jinx this team? Uh, I'm, I'm a believer in superstitions, even though I think they're the stupidest thing in the world, and I started thinking I was some sort of jinx. But anyway... I remember uh, Koloski running out there on the floor and helping Greg off the floor and blood in the towel. And Greg looked like he looked like he was just in a heavyweight fight. and He was knocked out by a gigantic uppercut from Mike Tyson. I mean, that's just what it looked like. And watching the rest of the game, it was kind of you're kind of like a zombie. You don't care about the final score. You, you're just you figure season's over. Um, no offense against Sianovic, but Sianovic wasn't going to lead us to a national championship. He was there to buy eight to ten minutes and not mess up. That's what his role was. It wasn't there to be uh, an assist man, a defender, somebody that could score when needed. So I was pretty much convinced that was it. I remember going home with a sick stomach because my parents always wanted to know. I still lived at home. I was in college at UNLV. You know, how'd the Rebels do tonight? How'd they do? And I was just, and I was as pale as a ghost when I told my parents what happened. And, um, you know, you, you wake up the next morning and it was the damnedest thing. The guy had his, uh, Dr. Daniel Orr wired up his jaw. They came up with some makeshift face mask. It, at first, the first iteration was a basketball helmet looking thing it was really really ugly but um i guess um neil mccarthy we were playing new mexico state yeah in fact yeah we did play new mexico state a couple nights later and mccarthy complained that you know the helmet was a hazard he didn't want him to play he wanted the ncaa to check it out and mccarthy i mean i guess he was doing what he had to do they they had a one game lead on UNLV. They were undefeated in conference, I believe. Um, they were now ranked number 25 in the country. New Mexico State was, and it was a critical game for New Mexico State. They they just, you know, they beat us by a point at third place. And if they could beat UNLV in the next game, they're, they're in the driver's seat for the conference championship, which which would have been real bizarre. Would have been a real weird feeling. And uh, I, I remember the players getting a little bit pissed about that, that McCarthy was doing everything he could to keep Greg Anthony out of the game. But UNLV ended up coming up with something else, a different type of phase guard, and it was, you know, the NCAA said, yeah, it's good to go, and he could play. And um, But I remember at that moment, um, UNLV became a better team. UNLV became a more selfless team. It was pretty clear that even though Larry Johnson was a great player, the best player on the team, and even though Larry Johnson was a very unselfish player, and even though, you know, he was the big man on campus, it was pretty clear that Greg Anthony, with that one selfless action, became the leader of the team. And I'll be damned if he didn't galvanize an already incredibly strong team, a team that was just, just 
dripping with character. That's that's one of the things. You know, they had that bad rap of being a bunch of thugs, this, that, or the other. But a team that has put as, through as much as UNLV was that particular season, and for them to get stronger and stronger with every obstacle, with every everything that was thrown at them, and they just seem to get better and better and better. I mean, if th that's what character is, it's 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 overcoming, it's brushing yourself off, it's getting better. Um, so you know, they could call them thugs or whatever the hell they wanted to call them. I don't think there was no team with more character than the UNLV Running Rebels in 1990. I'm I'm sure of that. And when Greg did that, I was, you know, I was beside myself. I mean, I was just like I. When he came out on the court and they announced his name for that next game against New Mexico State, I was just – the uh, beating them wasn't nearly as important. I mean, Greg was back. So – but then, you know, business at hand, you got you to gotta play him, and UNLV ended up absolutely smoking New Mexico State. I think Anderson Hunt hit nine three-pointers in that particular game, nine. And UNLV beat them by – I got to glance down at the score. Excuse me for that. I don't have every stat and every score in etched in my memory, so I do need to reach back here now and again. But UNLV beat him by 23 points. It wasn't even close. And um, I I, th I think that was really a game where it was an exclamation point. It said, we're here. We're going to do what we want, and this is our stretch run, and we're going to go for it. Now, so UNLV is tied with uh, New Mexico State for the conference, and they get another tough game coming up next. I'll be damned. It's a, Again, here we go. We're playing Arizona. They're ranked number 20 in the country. Arizona, obviously, we beat them the year before. They lost. They were, they were a very good team, but they were without um, Sean Elliott, but still a very good team, and it, it was a very, very good game. Um, that was a game where... Um, I remember David Butler came up with a block shot over the middle and threw it into the first row, and Anderson acted like he had some sort of chance to get that ball. I don't think if the ball was rejected anywhere but over the Arizona Wildcat bench that Anderson Hunt would have tried to save it, but it gave him an excuse to fly into the Arizona Wildcat bench at full speed and jump into all of them and to exchange some words and some shoulders with Lute Olson, which me personally, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. It just, it's sort of, you know, it, it says something about who you are. It's, we're not backing down. We're, we're going to deliver the punches. This is our house. We're going to do it the way we want. So UNLV takes care of Arizona. They move on to 22 and four on the season. Then they win easily at Irvine. They crush Louisville. And then the last setback of the season. UNLV traveled down to Santa Barbara. I mentioned earlier how some of these uh, these venues were in the Mountain. I'm sorry, not Mountain West, but in the Big West. Um, Thomas and Mac was obviously tough to play. It was the biggest, but it was always packed, and, and UNLV was always so good, and the crowd would really get behind uh, the team. So UNLV was the toughest venue to win, and next to that, it was Thunderdome. It was Santa Barbara. That place, I don't know what they seated maybe 4,000 but for you and LV coming to town it was packed I remember they were throwing tennis balls and tortillas and um I I think it may have had a little bit of an impact on our players I mean that that's how intimidating it was to play in some of these small gyms UNLV ended up dropping that game they they did not play well at all um they they 
they lost by eight points to Santa Barbara and fell to 14 and two in conference. And, um, you know, Santa Barbara was, was a good team. Um, don't get me wrong. So it's not like it was a, a terrible, terrible loss. Again, road, road games are very tough in conference as it is, but, um, you know, we only beat Santa Barbara by two at the Thomas and Mac earlier in the year. Um, Santa Barbara had some real nice players at the top of that list. I, um, who I remember was Eric MacArthur. He was a center. I think they, they called him ice and, and he averaged 15 points, 13 rebounds, five block shots. He seemed to block everything in sight. Uh, they had other players, character heart, Lucius Davis, Paul Johnson. Um, it was, it was, it was an intense game because the crowd didn't shut up. Um, Again, the conference, like I said, especially with individual players, even somebody like Fullerton, they had a Cedric Sabalos who was an amazing player. I mean, so there was talent spotted throughout the league. There were three, what I would say, three good teams. I mean, obviously, New Mexico State, they ended up being ranked. They made the NCAA tournament. The other team that made the tournament along with UNLV was Santa Barbara. I think Santa Barbara finished 13-5 and five in conference that year. And... You know, UNLV goes through the rest of the year, the rest of the conference, uh, winning out. And winning out included a payback game at Utah State. Now, remember, with Utah State, UNLV had that, that melee at the MAC, And I was, I was honestly worried about this game, um, mainly because, you know, you see some things on TV, and they were interviewing all the Utah State fans. And it seemed like they had something in store for the Rebels. Um, they had revenge on their mind. I mean, they shouldn't win. UNLV beat them by 30, and they were just a pretty mediocre team. But, you know, when something like that happens, it, it kind of changes the dynamic of a game. You, you just don't know how it's going to play out. And uh, UNLV traveled up to Logan, and Utah State gave UNLV everything they could handle. In fact, at... I think at the beginning of the second half in a tight game, the the Utah State fans, and, and you have to give their students some credit, uh, Utah State had, was another one of those venues that had a great crowd. It was even better back then than it is now. They rigged a bomb, a water bomb, not an explosive, damaging, hurtful bomb, but just a water bomb underneath some grating that was right underneath Tark's seat. And when the second half started... It exploded, and blue blue water went all over the place. It soaked Tark. I know Tark thought it was funny in retrospect, obviously, because nobody got hurt. And he thought it was a, you know, I think he, he called it clever. I remember the interviews he called it. It was really clever because he thought it was a water pipe or something that burst. And, you know, he's, you know, Tark, he didn't know anything was going on unless it was on the court. So, um, but that play, it forced um, the referees to call a technical foul on the crowd, which you don't see happen very often, but they had to call it. UNLV hit both free throws. And in the end, UNLV ended up winning that game 84-82. to 82. They closed out the season before the, the Big West tournament against Fullerton, um, and UNLV had to win because sitting at the top of the standings was New Mexico State at 16-2, and two, and UNLV was 15-2. and two. UNLV won it easily at Fullerton, um, won it by 18 points, and... It's the weirdest thing. UNLV always wins conference. But in the year that they won the national championship, they tied for the conference lead. It just, it's its kind of bizarre, especially when it wasn't considered a power league. I mean, you see that happen in some 
uh, in many power leagues, the top team doesn't always win it. It might be the second, third, or fourth place team in, in, out of the ACC that wins a national championship, but not out of the Big West. But anyway, so that that was kind of ironic. But, you know, UNLV, they absolutely rolled um, through the Big West tournament. They played Fullerton, win that game by 22 points. They play Pacific, they win that game by 27 points. And then they finish up in the championship game with the home team. Long Beach State and UNLV wins that game by 18 points. They end up win, earning the number one seed in the West for the NCAA tournament. And I think um, expect at that point, I think everybody had national championship on their mind. I think uh, to expect a national championship is a little bit unfair because it takes more than just being a, a good damn team. You need to, I mean, you really need to to have some luck on your side, and and UNLV would need some of that luck. I, I mean, I don't think they were lucky to win it. I think they were the best team in the country, but there were some um, there were some moments where um, things. I wouldn't even say UNLV was lucky. I would just say they avoided being unlucky. More is is the right key. Um, other teams weren't so lucky against UNLV. Um, so. Where did the NCAA tournament start? That first round was, I have to think here. For some reason, I'm picturing the Huntsman Center in my mind, uh, Utah. So the game, yeah, it would have been Salt Lake. So UNLV opened up in the first round of the NCAA tournament in Salt Lake. Easy travel for some UNLV fans. Unfortunately, I wasn't one that made it. I never really thought that. I, th I always thought it was for the elite to travel. I didn't learn until many years later that anybody that wanted to travel could travel. And it didn't have to cost a lot of money but anyway um so UNLV opened against Arkansas Little Rock um obviously nobody paid much attention to that game you're the number one of the number one seeds and you're playing the 16th seed the only thing you're maybe mildly worried about is you know the the uh, March Madness magic maybe jumping up and biting you in the butt and then you end up becoming the butt of a joke for the rest of uh history but um not even that was a concern um Arkansas Little Rock, they they were they, they they were no challenge. UNLV had just, you know, come off winning fifteen of their previous sixteen games. And I believe UNLV led by about twenty points at half in that game. And uh in fact the starters, I don't think I think they were out by they they were I think all the starters were out by at least ten minutes to go and then the reserves finished off the game and UNLV still won that game one oh two to 72 they won by 30 points i remember the i remember tark talking about it tark always worried it didn't matter who they were playing tark was always trying to build up the opponent like they were some uh some juggernaut i mean he had to find his motivation his guys were so good and i think the players knew that tark was pulling their leg most of the time uh they, they had a player i remember his name was carl brown and they called him nasty carl nasty brown you know so i was like okay we'll see if this guy goes off maybe he's one of those guys that uh you know they they is part of one shining moment you, you know just one of these guys that's gonna go nuts and hit 14 three-pointers and just drive you nuts well carl nasty brown didn't do that so much unlv was all over him i remember defensively the kid was so lost between greg anthony and, and anderson hunt covering him he 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 got some shots off but he just didn't make very many, many of them. He was two for 17 from the floor, and he was one for 10 from three points. The guy who was their best player by far ended up with only five points, and he shot the ball like hell. What was a concern, um, you know, Anderson Hunt, who later became the Final Four most outstanding player, 
he didn't shoot the ball very well early in in the NCAA tournament in that particular game. Um, Anderson was one for six from three, and I, and I know against Ohio State, the whole team struggled. Ohio State is who they played in the second round. Now, Ohio State was um, an inter- interesting game. They were um, they were an eight seed that UNLV played, and you know eight seeds can bounce historically. An eight seed can jump up and bite a number one. And this game was a lot closer than I had wanted it to be. I was I was slightly nervous with it because, um, you know, they're out of the Big Ten and and they played a slow down bruising style and they did have some talent. They weren't without talent at all. Um, you know, they had Jimmy Jackson. Granted, he, Jimmy Jackson was a freshman on that team, but I think they had Chris Jennett and Mark Baker, and all, I, all three of those guys I believe spent time in the NBA. So they weren't ranked or anything like that, and I think they finished fifth or sixth in in the big the Big Ten. But they had talent, and they were defensive. Um, I think Randy Ayers was the coach, um, and the game was was actually tight. UNLV was only up two at the half. Now this was a, it was definitely a grinder game. Neither team shot it well, um, and in fact, I remember UNLV in the second half for most of the half leading like by eight to 12 points, you know, that sort of middle ground where you're, you're never too comfortable, especially the way UNLV tended to shoot free throws, but you weren't super worried, but you just sort of wanted to put that final knife into them and, and, and just end the game. And it just seemed not to come. Sure enough, you know, UNLV gets a technical, it changes the momentum a little bit. UNLV misses. It, it seemed like they made one out of two every time they went to the free throw line down the stretch. And with, I think with two minutes left, UNLV was only up by five. So you're a little bit worried. And what's even worse is at that point, and and I don't think many people realize this, UNLV, I don't know what UNLV's three-point streak is right now, probably at about 1,100 games. Back then it it wasn't even mentioned because UNLV was, what, five years into the three-point streak, so, you know, somewhere around 150 games. That's nothing to brag about. It's not really a record. Nobody's tracking it. You know, um, it may have been mentioned in passing. Certainly, it's not mentioned as much as 1100 or whatever it is nowadays. But um, UNLV was zero for 12 from three point range. Um, So, I mean, UNLV could have took a double loss there. Not that anybody would have cared about the three point streak since it really wasn't even a streak at that point, it was in its infancy. But with a minute and a half left, UNLV up by five points. Uh, shot clock running down. Back then it was a 45-second shot clock, and uh, UNLV was trying to milk some clock, and they got down late in the shot clock, and they really found themselves with not a lot. And I remember Larry Johnson giving Greg the ball out just to the right of the top of the key, and Greg circling back and taking a a, a pretty tough three-pointer as the shot clock was expiring, and he swished it. And it gave UNLV the eight-point lead. Um yeah, that that was the breathing room they needed with about a minute and a half left, and UNLV ended up uh, winning the game by 11 points, but it, it seemed to be a little bit tighter than the 11 points. I mean, it never felt like the game was in jeopardy, but it felt like it was just, it was a little bit more tenuous than you wanted it to be the entire way. So, you know, UNLV accomplished what they were supposed to accomplish. They were in the Sweet 16. Nobody expect, certainly expected anything less than that. And now UNLV plays a team out of Muncie 
Indiana called Ball State. Nobody knew anything about Ball State. Um, we just knew that they upset Louisville in the round before, and that's pretty much what UNLV expected to play. But now here's Ball State. Uh, what I remembered most about that was David Letterman graduated from Ball State. I did not know much about them. They were coached the year prior by Rick Majerus. And Rick Majerus then went to the University of Utah where we battled with him for many, many years. Majerus was known, maybe he wasn't known back then, but um, he became known at Utah as pretty much a, a master tactician offensively, especially with all of his screens and how he got players open. That wasn't this Ball State team. Um, they were entirely different from any Utah team that Majerus had. I mean, as polar opposite as they could be. Now, they wanted to call UNLV thugs. Ball State was thugs. Um, Dick Hunsacker took over. Um, he was a long time, he was an assistant for for Majerus, and he ended up being his assistant at Utah later. But or um, they, they were just, they had a lot of inner city kids that were tough from the, I, I believe some of them, at least some of the key players were from the D.C. area or, I just know that um, there was a lot of summer ball played. So the guys, a lot of the guys knew each other already. And so um, you know how the smack goes between some kids back then. And, and back then they weren't kids. They were men. So it was going to be physical. It was going to be tough. It was going to be a grinder. But UNLV was so much more talented that I didn't think it would necessarily be a contest. Well, I, I, I do have to give some credit to Ball State because um, – they they played if you were going to come up with a game plan against UNLV you weren't going to run with them nobody was going to run with them uh, as we'll learn in the next game even the teams that ran best couldn't run with the rebels you really really had to slow them down and you couldn't allow any transition baskets um you had to be very solid defensively and you had to hit the boards and you, you had it, even though UNLV was talented up front, they weren't really, and they were tough up front, they weren't really beefy. I mean, David Butler, I mean, he may, he, you know, he went 6'10, he may weigh 215, I mean, maybe 220. Moses Scurry had a little bit of thickness. Obviously, Larry was thick, but Larry, you know, they could publish him at 6'7 all they want. Larry was about 6'4 and a half. So, I mean, one way to get to the Rebels was um, with some toughness, with really banging the living hell out of them. It would at least keep you close. It would give you a chance. It would give you a fighting chance. And if you got some breaks along the way, um, you know, who knows? You could hang around towards the end. Anything could happen. I remember they did have an off-athletic guard named uh, Chandler Thompson, and he came up with a dunk in that game, a putback dunk over Stacey Ogden's back. And it was it was shown frequently during uh, the tournament highlights. I know it made one shining moment. It was just an incredible dunk. But in return, Stacey had a tremendous dunk in that game but anyway this was a game where um UNLV they led by eight at the half so you know you're, you're feeling pretty good about things you're feeling like you're going to advance to the lead eight but like I said they they really really thugged it up um as it turned out um Ball State killed UNLV on the boards. Ball State, I'm looking at stats now. Ball State out-rebounded UNLV 47-34. Now, you're talking about one of the best teams in the nation. I think UNLV led, not led, but I think UNLV was plus five or six for the year on rebounds. And UNLV gave up 23 offensive rebounds 
in that game. So they they really did what they set out to do, and it rattled UNLV. And of course, UNLV they they were really really good at um, missing free throws. I mean, it's just one of those things. They missed some key free throws late, and the game was a lot tighter than than it should have been. And um, with it looked like UNLV was going to put the game away, and Greg stepped up to the line, up two points, I believe, 69-67. Greg stepped up to the line for a one-on-one, on, one on one, and he missed the front front end. So now Ball State has a chance to tie the game. Now, unfortunately for Ball State, um, what sent Greg to the line was a disqualifying foul for one of their starters. Um, so he was out of the game, and Ball State had the possession. And they, they had a little-used reserve named Mike Spicer uh, replacing that guard. And he ended up coming into play at the very end of the game. Now, um, Ball State drew up a play. They got it to their best player, um, Paris McCurdy, uh, a power forward. And he kind of slipped going around the corner. He Actually, he didn't kind of slip. He slipped and he fell. And I remember Hunsaker screaming after the game that Larry tackled him. Um, Larry didn't tackle him. Larry barely even bodied him. It was an absolute no call. And I think it was just, you know, heat of the moment guy screaming. And um, But McCurdy passed the ball out to Spicer. And Spicer kind of had a shot if he wanted to. He penetrated a little bit. And he got um, just outside of the free throw line. And he threw a lob down low. A perfect pass might have worked. But it wasn't a perfect pass, and David Butler read it perfectly. Butler went up high. He intercepted it um, pretty much as the clock expired. He came down with the ball, and UNLV, you know, they escaped with a 69-67 victory. Of course, um, these guys both having that thug, you know, the, the, it was attributed to both teams. More Probably, I thought... Um, that Ball State was more thuggy. But anyway, and the kids knew each other, and there was a lot of mouthing going on during the game. So, again, here's another outburst in the tunnel after the game. Hunsecker went nuts. Um, I know Turk disliked the guy after that. Um, he went, you know, he had nothing but bad things to say about the Rebels, about, again, like I said, how Larry Johnson tackled his player and how they were thugs in the hall and all that. I guess you could attribute it to just, you know, losing a tough game, um, competitive nature, but the guy was a little bit too young to be, you know, mouthing off like that. And I wish you know he could have played him again because then they would have probably done what they did to Utah State. But anyway, uh, that ended up being UNLV's tightest game of the NCAA tournament. With that win, UNLV, who do they get next? A team of Destiny. Team we didn't know a lot about when we beat them earlier in the season for the first home game of the season in the preseason NIT, Loyola Marymount. Well, Loyola Marymount, everybody knew who they were by then for a couple of reasons. First of all, they were breaking every scoring record. They were shooting threes at, a, at an insane pace. They beat Michigan by about 100 points in the NCAA tournament, and they just looked like a team of destiny. Now, in their conference tournament in the WCC, um, Obviously, many people remember Loyola Marymount. They they had the dynamic. They had some good offensive players, but their dynamic duo was Bo Kemble and Hank Gathers. And during that, um, the WCC tournament, it, it's it's a vision I can't get out of my head, and it it was just such a sad, hard to watch thing um, when Hank Gathers went down in the conference tournament. Um, Man, I, I still I could picture it. I could picture I could picture his mom running on the floor. Hank, they didn't. Well, they did know. As it turns out, they did a heart condition. 
Hank Gathers, and uh, he collapsed on the floor in the second half of a WCC game. I think it was the second half, and uh, he collapsed, and it wasn't very long after he collapsed that Hank Gathers, one of the best players in the nation, uh, died at such a young age and with so much promise. And like I said, it's it, it's hard because I, I, could, I could see it, and, you know, you never want to see that happen to anybody, and he was just a vibrant, fun kid and uh he had a lot to live for and and seeing him go down like that in the stadium it was tough and for a while there um Loyola Marymount didn't even know if they were gonna play in the, the NCAA tournament it was just a, a huge burden you know how do you how do you take your mind off something like that but I'm glad they did decide to play in the tournament they those kids deserved it they used it they used it as motivation they be, kind of became America's team um and I'm not going to lie, this, this, and it's it's because of all that hype. It it was going to be us against the world. No, no matter who UNLV played, everybody else, want, any non-UNLV fan wanted the other team to win. But with Loyola Marymount, it seemed like non-basketball fans wanted Loyola Marymount to win. Like I said, they were a team of destiny. They were playing for their past friend, uh, Hank Gathers. They were playing for a higher purpose. And they were playing such a high level of basketball and they were taking no prisoners. It was it was unbelievable the way they were scoring. I remember one of the shows popular at that time, it might have been the first or second year of existence, was Arsenio Hall based out of LA. And a day or two, maybe three days, uh no, it couldn't have been that far ahead, could it have? But anyway, I remember Jeff Fryer and Bo Kimball sitting on the set of Arsenio Hall talking about how the Rebels have no idea what's coming their way, how they're going to need their oxygen tanks, um, that they were just going to blow them out of the water like they had every other team. And I think I took all that in as a fan that, you know, I looked at it as a major, major threat. I was really nervous. I remember my dad, my dad was a little bit upset because he was flying back to Chicago um, and he'd be in error when the game tipped. And he wanted to see the game, and technology wasn't such back then to where he could have any indication how the Rebels did until he landed in Chicago. But um, so I was nervous, and earlier I mentioned how Tark always played up the opponent. He had to build them up, and even if the team sucked it, Tark was going to make him seem like they were national contenders. Little did I know, and I didn't know it at the time, um, this came many years later within the last couple of years of Tark's life that I learned in talking with Tark. I used to do... A, um, I, I used to be a guest on, on several of his radio shows, um, so I got to talk with him a lot, which was really neat for me as a fan. And I don't, I don't remember if we talked on radio or off radio when he told me this, but he told me that he was surprised that I was worried about the Loyola Marymount game. And he said that was the only game he remembers where he wasn't afraid. He knew that they were going to win. And that is so unlike Tark. And, <laughs> well, let's just say... Tark was right. I mean, that was a game where um, it was, from from an entertainment standpoint, it was fantastic to watch because it was nonstop scoring. I mean, at one point of the game, I remember a stat flashing up on the screen that the average time of possession for Loyola Marymount was seven seconds, and the average time of possession for UNLV was like 12 seconds. And that's with the 45-second shot clock. So the shots were going up left and right, and the scoring was just was insane. Um you know, UNLV ended up, I'm, I'm looking at the stats here, Anderson Hunt ended up with 30 points, Larry Johnson had 20, Stacey Ogman had 33, I remember Stacey had 25 by the half, Greg Anthony had 21 points, 
So, I mean, just, I mean, you're, you're just looking there. I mean, those four guys scored, what is that, 94 points. That's insane. That's abs- That's just four players. I mean, then, you know, you had Butler with nine and Scurry with eight, James Jones with seven. So, I mean, it was one of those, it was almost like playing, you know, a video game where everybody sets a career high with, with rebounds. Larry Johnson had 18 rebounds. You know, he ended up having 35 assists in that particular game, which which is insane. But um, I remember still never feeling comfortable in that game. UNLV was up 20 at the half. Um, Loyola and Marymount really never made a significant push. They, I think they got it down to 14 at some point in the second half, but it ballooned. And and UNLV was in well control, but I still remember I was watching uh, the game in my living room with my best friend, John. And I, I kept telling him it's not over. It's not. It was, there was five minutes left, and you know he's up by like twenty five points. I'm like, it's not over. It's not over because I've seen Loyola Marymount nail four three pointers in a minute. Uh, that never happened. Um, I'm sitting there worrying, and Tark has already drawn up game plans for the final four. So you know he ends up winning that game. It was like I said, it was a very fun game to, to watch, and and you know Bo Kimball, he you know he didn't he shot the ball a lot. But hats off to him. I mean, the guy ended up with 42 points and 11 rebounds, which um, for college basketball, that's ridiculous. But for Loyola Marymount, it really wasn't that ridiculous because both he and Bo had numbers like that throughout the season because they were putting up such huge numbers. But, you know, that was – I think that was the second game where UNLV broke 100 in the NCAA tournament, which it, it just doesn't happen. So UNLV wins that game. I remember um, – Las Vegas, I remember that night. I remember how excited I was. I, I I mean, to me, that was a big relief on the road to the Final Four, winning that game, even though it really wasn't since Tark knew they were going to win so easily. I remember I was 21 years old, and I was going to go out for the night and party it up. And I, I remember jumping in my shower to get ready to go out. And um, I don't know what the hell I was doing with a bottle of Everclear. But I had a bottle of Everclear, and I'm just drinking out of the bottle while I'm taking a shower. I'm surprised I was able to get out of the shower, but I was able to get out of the shower. Friends picked me up. We went. I remember we went to the T-Bird Lounge by my house. And the not that it was a far drive from my house back then, but um, cars are honking. This is Sweet 16. Cars are honking. You could hear the rebel chants from Holmes. Um, we pull up to the bar, and the bar itself, it's, it wasn't like it was a popular bar. It certainly wasn't in nowhere near Maryland Parkway where all the clubs and things were. The whole bar was going nuts. The, that whole little center was on Tropicana and Pecos, the movie theater right around the corner. And everybody was chanting Rebels everywhere you went, and it, it just it just kind of fed you, and it gave you adrenaline, and it was just a good time. The whole city was just behind the Rebels, and... Um, you know, it, it was special. Here we were. We're headed to the Final Four. I remember heading to the airport. Um, and the airport was an absolute mob. There were so many people in there just parking and walking to the concourse and just trying to meet the team coming off the plane. I've got video of it, home video. I should really should upload it at some point just so that, um, you know, it doesn't get lost in history. You know, I should turn it digital because it was a fun time. I'm, I'm talking shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder people in the airport trying to get to the team. Um, music blaring, boomboxes blaring. Um, the music was playing um, Walk Like a Tarkanian, even though that was attributed to the 87 team. And and I, I, 
it, it was a giant party and um followed the guys all the way down to baggage claim and i remember and i've got this this on on video it was kind of uh it was weird because you you didn't know it at the time but i remember we, we weren't reporters we were just fans and we were talking to players and talking to fans and we had one of those big video recorders not quite the type you held on your shoulder but it was certainly bigger than your hand and it, you know weighed a couple pounds my buddy john's filming and um we're talking to players and they're you know they're all giving high fives and everything all smiles and talking and uh john goes to give dave rice a high five and uh i, I have this video it is so funny it's it hey dave he goes hey dave how do you think we're going to do against georgia tech and we didn't know Dave was going to be a future coach at that point. I didn't know Dave at that point. You know, I was just, I was the same age as Dave. And, and uh, we're, you know, we're just, we're college classmates, all of us. So, and Dave, in a serious face, he breaks down Georgia Tech right there on camera. He starts talking about lethal weapon and three and what they do well and where they struggle and where the rebels might be able to find some chinks in the armor. And I'm like... We finished it, and I look at my friend John. I go, look at this dork. He thinks he's a coach. You know, it just it just wasn't a 21-year-old answer to give. But, you know, that's Dave because anybody that has known Dave since then, he's very analytical, and he's very serious about, you know, what, what's on the table. Even though he was a reserve on that team, uh, he, he it's just the way he is. And I have that video, and I have all those old videos. But um, the, the town was going nuts. We are rallying and um, on deck for UNLV, you know, at, at in Denver. Uh, those previous two games, Loyola Marymount and, and Ball State were in Oakland, I believe. And then the final four was in Denver at McNichols Arena. Um, you know, that's where UNLV played their uh, Mountain West tournament games when it wasn't at the Thomas & Mack in the early 2000s. But McNichols Arena, it was it wasn't one of these giant megadomes. It was you know a eighteen, seventeen thousand seat stadium, nice and warm and cozy, and UNLV had to play Georgia Tech. I I was worried about the ACC because the ACC was pretty much the cream of the crop back then, um, at least one of the two or three best leagues, and um, the Final Four featured two of their teams, Georgia Tech and duke obviously and unlv was there and the other team was arkansas arkansas was a team that unlv beat by 11 points they were ranked number 14 when unlv beat them at the thomas and mac so when i said earlier that we really didn't know quite what arkansas was going to become it became apparent because arkansas got better and better and better um as the season went on obviously they lost to duke and duke was waiting the winner of unlv georgia tech uh i remember that the Duke fans were rooting for Georgia Tech. They wanted, they, I mean, yeah, yeah, they won the fans, the bands, the fans, they wanted an ACC final. And there were, I remember shots being taken at the UNLV team, welcome fellow scholars. Um, it was like taking a shot that UNLV wasn't a real school. Um, you know, it was just one of those games where you were worried. And, and but it wasn't ne necessarily conference affiliation. I mean, Georgia Tech was loaded. Um, lethal Weapon 3, you had Kenny Anderson, Brian Oliver, and Dennis Scott. I don't know how many remember Kenny Anderson. He was only a freshman, but um, Kenny Anderson was probably, in my lifetime, the most dynamic 
freshman point guard I've ever seen. I mean, he was that good. He was that creative. He made everybody around him that much better. The kid could score. He could dish it. He he could just do everything. He he was just a magnificent player. And Dennis Scott, he had a long NBA career, and he was a insane shooter, obviously. And that was going to be Stacy Ogman's man. And it, it was a game that had me worried. And, and it didn't have me worried as much to start as it did as the game started because for the first time, I think, pretty much all season, maybe with the exception of at Santa Barbara, I saw a concerned look in the body language of the Rebels. Um, they were concerned about Georgia Tech. They I, they over-respected them, maybe. They knew they were talented, and UNLV just wasn't quite as aggressive. It was almost like they got into a defensive boxer mode. And... Georgia Tech made the most of that. Um, they really severely outplayed UNLV in that first half. Uh, Georgia Tech led 53-46 to 46 at the half. Larry Johnson wasn't having a particular good, particularly good game. In fact, he didn't for the, the game, as it turned out. Um, the Rebels didn't just have a particularly good game. It just was, um, I don't know. It, it, I, wouldn't, I won't say they were, they were scared. I think they just gave too much respect to Lethal Weapon 3. Well, that, that changed in the second half. Whatever it was that was said at halftime, uh, UNLV came out a different team defensively in the second half, and they really laid laid in into them uh, defensively. I mean, UNLV ended up outscoring Georgia Tech by 16 points in the second half to win 90-81. Uh, to 81. Um, But it... it it was closer than that. It was much closer than that, and there were some pivotal moments in that game. Even though Larry Johnson ended up finishing with um, 15 points and five rebounds, and he was five for 11 from the floor. That's not Larry. That's not Larry at all. That's just not his game. Uh, Stacy was huge for UNLV with 22 points and nine rebounds. But what happened was um, Larry Johnson got in foul trouble. He was in foul trouble most of the game. But he fouled out for good late in that game at a critical point. I can't, I can't remember exactly how many minutes were left, five or four minutes left in the game, and the game was still hanging in the balance. And, you know, just like you lose any starter, you have some concern because UNLV didn't go especially deep on the bench. Um, but Larry was the best player in the country. You lose him, again, you're really worried. But, you know, and, and to, to me, this is where... Um, Moses Scurry earned every ounce of gold in that ring. He came in for Larry Johnson, and it wasn't scoring. He only ended up with six points, um, three for four from the floor. But Moses Scurry, I don't know how many rebounds he grabbed in the second half, especially when he replaced Larry for good. But he ended up, he played 21 minutes. He ended up with 11 rebounds. And Georgia Tech was um, was, it was a good rebounding team, and and. You know, they out-rebounded him, but that was in large part due to the effort by Moses Scurry. He went after every ball off the rim like an absolute madman. And um, he deserves as much credit as anybody on that team for UNLV being able to withstand what Georgia Tech was throwing at him. Um, Dennis Scott, like I said, he was a tremendous shooter. He ended up hitting 7 of 14 three-pointers for 29 points. Brian Oliver ended up with... 24 points. He was their other big scorer. Um, and 
you know, just to show that UNLV defensively wasn't there, like I stated, they showed a little bit too much respect. Uh, usually you don't win games like this. Georgia Tech was 58% from the floor. UNLV was only 48%. Um, UNLV got them at the three-point line. UNLV hit 10 of 15, and Georgia Tech hit 8 of 21. And um, UNLV, you know, they made enough free throws, even though they didn't make them all. But I still remember um, not feeling quite, like the game was over it was we won by nine but it wasn't quite over um it was sealed with a late rebound late rebound and outlet pa pass and a dunk by david butler that kind of you know put the n final punch into the nail and sent the rebels into the championship game against duke taking a lot of time finally finds him at the top Hoffman out on him misfires scurry with his 10th rebound of the game 13 seconds to go butler now to hunt and butler to finish he's got it that'll do it yes sir big sigh of relief and now the rebels were headed to the ncaa championship game obviously against the duke blue devils um <sighs> I'm trying to think how worried I was heading into that game. Biggest game of the year. Biggest game in the history of Las Vegas. Um, I do remember. I, I didn't know that we'd win. But I do remember that I wasn't necessarily afraid of Duke. And whatever whatever concern I had, I think, I really think it disappeared early because, um, now, remember, Duke is an extremely talented team. They they had a freshman point guard that, that we rattled, Bobby Harley. But the body language, um it just it for Duke, it, it was it was very they, they were very uncertain. A every aspect of their game. They they were an uncertain team. And it uh, even before UNLV went on an eighteen oh second half run, I think twelve of those points were by Anderson Hunt to put, you know, balloon the game from a 12-point lead to a 30-point lead. Even before that, it just looked like men. I mean, literally, it looked like men versus boys. And and that's not to discredit Duke. It's just that's how on top of the game, that particular game, UNLV was. I mean, they were just – I wouldn't say they played the perfect game, but UNLV just – I don't know. They, they, they were the aggressor, and any time that – Duke showed a little bit of weakness. It was it was like an animal just feasting on prey, and UNLV just would tear them apart. And the the game was, I wouldn't say it was over before it started, but it certainly was. Um, I think by the by the time UNLV had that lead at the half, um, it, it it was I don't I, it's hard to say it was over. I just wasn't worried, and it was like let's get through this this next uh, twenty minutes. And and do it. I remember Greg Anthony. Um, the game was a little bit back and forth. It was a little bit tight in the first uh, ten minutes. You know, a couple possession game, but it, you never. I mean, you even saw it then. Duke wasn't. They weren't on the same level as UNLV, and UNLV wasn't screwing around in this particular game. Uh, uh, Greg Anthony hit um, a running two pointer at the buzzer to put UNLV up uh, 47-35 at the half. And it really did feel like the game was over. It felt like if UNLV wasn't going to win this game, it wasn't going to be because Duke came out on fire and, and 
did something that UNLV couldn't handle. It w- it would have been more like UNLV screwed up in every aspect and they kind of lost what they were going for. You, you know, they just they they just lost focus and sort of took their guard down. Um, Tark was very good against guarding against that, so I'm sure the halftime speech was was probably pretty animated about putting the team away. I mean, you only got 20, 20 minutes left in, in your basketball season. you you got to lay it all out on the line. And if both teams laid it out on the line and both teams played well, UNLV was still going to come out victorious because UNLV was just that much better than Duke. Um, obviously, the key to that game was the 18 to nothing run in the second half, which was an one of the most... Beautiful sports moments I've seen in my entire life uh, as a fan. I mean, if you're just a neutral fan and you're watching, you're saying, oh, this is garbage. I'm not going to watch this game. This is boring. But when you're a fan of a team and you see them play with that much ferocity and just no let up, and it's it's an absolute thing of beauty. It really is. I mean, seeing UNLV flying all over the place, dunking, um, that, that 18-0 run is just – it's stuck in my mind. It was – Amazing. I, I, man, I have to think back to every play during the 18 0 run, but I know it was Anderson Hunt that absolutely went nuts. He hit a bunch of the, the three pointers. He struggled a little bit earlier in, um, in the NCAA tournament with his outside shot, but in that particular game, Anderson Hunt didn't struggle. I mean, he, he went for 29 points. He only hit four three pointers, but I, if I'm not mistaken, three of those came during that 18 0 run. I'd have to look at the video. Um, but he was also eight for nine from, from the floor. So Anderson Hunt was about as efficient as you're going to get. And, um, it's not like Larry screwed around either. He, 22 points, 11 rebounds. Greg Anthony had 13 points and six assists and Stacy Ogman. It was more on the defensive end, but you know, he chipped in with, uh, 12 points and seven assists and four rebounds. Uh, that, that's kind of what Stacy did right there. I mean, that that was kind of Stacy Ogman in a nutshell. He puts a little bit in every category, and he just smothers you defensively, and he really did that a, against Duke. So, um, you know, by the time the final buzzer went off, it was anticlimactic. Um, it, there was, it wasn't that feeling like with um, that I had with Loyola Marymount, like Duke was ever going to come back because – they just sunk deeper and deeper and deeper into the hole and the amount of sulking and the, just the fallen shoulders and, and sad eyes and high fives where they couldn't even, they couldn't even connect on high fives in that game. They were beaten. And, and I, I will give some, I know, I know we hate Duke. I know we hate Krzyzewski and we have to, otherwise you can't be a UNLV fan. That's just the way it is. It's, it's like Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees, you know, I will say this. Uh, for a game that the media pitted good versus evil, thugs versus choir boys, um, everything that's right about college basketball versus everything that's wrong about college basketball, that's the way the media wanted to paint the game. And Shashevsky was as as gracious in humiliating defeat as I've probably ever seen a coach because he tried to rip off that 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 image that the media laid on them about being bad kids about, you know, being thugs. And you could even see it. Um, UNLV, they, 
I, I mean, they were tough. They, they were tough, but they, but they weren't disrespectful. I mean, there were times where the lines was crossed. Yeah, like when Moses, it's hard to say they, they're not disrespectful when a player hits a coach. And there's some, some uh, scuffles in the tunnel. But um, UNLV respected Duke. Um, I think they over-respected Georgia Tech, but they respected Duke. And they didn't rub it in. There wasn't trash talking. And, um, you know, there were some good words between Krzyzewski and the players. And it, you could see there was a, a mutual admiration there. And, and I'm appreciative of Coach K's approach to it all because he tried to defuse the situation. And to be honest, I mean, the way Krzyzewski saw it is the way it really was. I mean, UNLV fans knew it. We knew that we weren't thuggy, bad kids that didn't belong in school. We knew that they were just tough kids, a lot of them from the street, but they were tough and they were united and they weren't going to take any shit off anybody. We knew that. The rest of the country didn't know that. They figured we were paying our players this and that and they didn't go to school. And if they did go to class, it was like a, a bartending class or underwater basket weaving. Um, uh, so... You know, that was it was kind of cool to see that kind of respect between teams after the game. Um, I still remember the look on Jim Delaney's face when he had to hand that trophy to Tark underneath the banner. Um, yeah, it was priceless. Tark had that Elmer Fudd smile going about him. And Delaney just, he, he wasn't happy. They didn't, NCAA did not want to give that trophy to UNLV and and I, I don't want to get into the future the following year because that'll take another I mean I'm already over two hours this is insane but um I don't want to get into all that but they didn't they definitely didn't want him to win and and UNLV to their credit and I think it's part of what made the championship so special it wasn't just winning winning is always special winning a championship and anything is going to be special but the way they did it um I'm appreciative that they took so many punches to the jaw. Um, I like that they were challenged. I like that they grew. I like that they galvanized. And I like that they became tougher than anybody else through the trials and tribulations of the season. Um, to me, that's important because it's that's more than sports. That's life. And to see it unfold slowly in front of your eyes over the course of, you know, a seven, six-month basketball season, it's beautiful. It really is. It's touching and and it's just great. Um, you know, I feel bad. F I sort of feel bad for the fans that that were there in Denver watching um, because they didn't get to experience the city. Obviously, the city went nuts. I mean, they pr they probably feel bad for us that we weren't there in Denver, but I feel like the city was the place to be. In fact, I made the pledge that if UNLV ever made it to another Final Four, which they did the following year, that I would stay in the city because I felt like um, that's where the pulse was. It wasn't going to be in the host city. It was going to be in Las Vegas. And I wanted to see the action. I wanted to see the reaction. I wanted to see the pride. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to be, you know, chin deep in the rebel pride that was uh, unbelievably had taken over the entire city. We won that game. Man, I remember I, I decided again I was twenty one years old. I decided I, I didn't want to drink. I didn't wanna I didn't want to dull my senses, if that makes sense. I, I made the conscious decision not to drink. I wanted to observe everything, I wanted to absorb everything, I wanted to remember everything. I knew it was a special moment. Um I took it for granted looking back because I thought there would be many more of those moments and that we deserved it. But um 
I headed down to Maryland Parkway in front of the Humanities Building. Maryland Parkway was closed off. There were too many people there. Uh, a lot of drinking, a lot of beer bottles flying. Um, lots of chants. Uh, man, I, I just, I, I remember the, I, I remember the, that, that entire week um, of the Final Four. I remember the radio. I, I usually listen to heavy metal stations. That's what I was into back then. But I remember, I really do remember Rebel Yell by Billy Idol just blasting. That's a song I led into, I think, with, with this podcast. And that's one of the reasons. Rebel Rebel by um, David Bowie. Um, Rock and Roll Rebel by Ozzy Osbourne. They played the old Walk Like a Tarkanian song. They played, the, I, I don't know if it was the same group, but the Walk Like a Tarkanian song, I'm assuming that group made another song called Running with the Rebels, a playoff of Van Halen's Running with the Devil. And those songs that that week, they they were just all over the airwaves. It was like, it was nonstop 24-hour rebels. And, man, it was such a good time. I And then I remember the, the one song that got to me the most came out probably 10 years before, maybe 12 years before 13. And I had heard it a million times, and I know what the song meant, but I never felt the song. But I remember it might have been about 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning. I'm driving back home. I, I was allowed to drive. I wasn't drinking. Um, heading back from Maryland Parkway, I, st I went through the drive through at Jack in the Box. And uh, there was a long line. And I'm sitting there, and I crank up 92.3 K1P. And We Are the Champions by um, Queen played. And I've never heard it more crystal clear. And I'm not before then and not since then. It's like every word, every note just sort of permeated your soul and it meant something. The words to that song and you just totally absorbed it. And I just I just remember, cry, I mean, I'm not ashamed of it. I cried like a little girl. Um, it was just a culmination, even though I had nothing to do with it, except being a, one of 18,500 fans that always showed up. Um, it was one of the most prideful things I've ever felt in my entire life. The only other thing I can compare to it is the birth of my kids, um, which obviously surpassed what the rebels gave to me, but I'm not trying to downplay it. I'm the, what, what the rebels did to the city back then. Oh man. Uh, just thinking about it. I, I still could picture it all. I bought so many t-shirts, so much memorabilia, and it, it seemed to go on and on um, for a few days. It's, it, people just wouldn't let it go, and, and they shouldn't. And it actually carried us on to the next year because next year was going to be even better. It, it turned out not to be. It ended up turning out to be a fantastic year that ended in disappointment, and then it, and which led to the complete collapse of a program that was at its pinnacle, which completely blows my mind but for that night for that season we were the undisputed best there was no question about it you walked with your chest out you walked completely straight campus was fun you saw the players on campus there were hugs there were high fives um i remember that night when we won it i, I wasn't on maryland park the whole night I went to the strip because obviously there was going to be a lot of people on the strip. 
and with some friends and my friends were all drinking i was the designated driver and uh we go to the strip and the, the strip was just i don't know if it was crazier than um maryland parkway but it was crazy i remember seeing the buses all being rocked back and forth uh, you saw more boobs on the strip than you do in a strip club. Uh, all the girl shirts were coming off. That was, you know, you're a 21 year old kid. That's a major bonus. You know, you don't, you never mind that. And um, there were some fights. I remember one one of my friends got into a fight because there's, you know, anytime there's a lot of alcohol like that, and emotions are high. It doesn't matter if they're good, you know, good emotions. Stuff is going to happen. There were some arrests, uh, but I mean, it, it's not like they trash the city like light things on fire and buildings on fire and cars on fire and flip them completely over i think they just tilted them mostly but it, it was running rebel fever at, at its highest point it was definitely fever pitch it's something i mean my memory's going you tell us i'm doing this podcast i, I was um reaching to remember th things and and you know it, it's something i'll never forget and you know, again, it's part of the reason I wanted to do this. Um, for the people that had experienced back then, if they were my age, they're in their 50s now. A lot of the fans were older. You know, they were in their 40s and 50s. A lot of them are no longer with us, or they've totally distanced themselves from the program. Um, it's quickly becoming a distant memory. And with media, there just isn't a lot of media. I mean, the media out there could tell you about the 1990 Rebels, but most of them didn't live it. And I don't want to say they don't know what they're talking about, but I, I always give a lot more credibility to people who lived through something, to people who felt it from their head to their toes. I mean, the media people like um, Ron Futrell, obviously, and I, I urge you to check out his channel. He's got a lot of old videos and newscasts of the time, and he has a ton of knowledge on this particular subject. Um, definitely urge you to talk him out, to, to reach out to him or... You know, the uh, another one is Tony, Tony Cordasco. Um, Tony's a great guy. Uh, he lived it. Th he lived through it, and he still has a lot of pride about it, and he could talk about a lot of this stuff. He remembers a lot of it. Um, you know, Steve Carp, he was here. So Steve, and he, he's written a book on the Rebels. So he's one you could reach out to. And um, I, I don't know what Joe Hawk is doing now. He's He's around. Somewhere, I don't think he's writing, but I still think he's at the RJ doing something. But anyway, there's there's not a lot of media people. There's not a lot of people willing to talk about it or going going to lengths to actually talk about it or make, make it publicly available what they lived through. Um, I think it's all important. I think it's everybody's viewpoint. You know, I like hearing what everybody felt. So, you know, I, I urge you guys, you know, you could reach out to us, RebelNet on, on Twitter, or I'm sure Ron or Tony Cordasco or Steve Carp, uh, they, they'd love to field questions. I mean, I'll take them on the site, um, take them on Twitter. We could banner, go back and forth through some old memories. It was just a time, I've never had a time like that in my life before. It was just, it was gold and it, it'll never, ever, ever be forgotten. I mean, wow, and we blew it. And we pissed it all away. I really don't want to get into that because I'll be on here for three hours and it'll be all swear words because I'm a little bit bitter. And I'm not too happy that UNLV hasn't gone through extensive efforts to recognize the 30th. Um, that 
aggravates me. It, sh it just shows me what they really think of the past and how people that like the past or enjoy the past, embrace it or have pride in it are basically a nuisance to the program now. That, that does aggravate me too. But I, I, I really don't want to end on that kind of note. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that uh, for some of the younger listeners, it gave you some idea of what it was like. I'm, again, I'm sorry a lot of it came from memory. I had a couple notes jotted down. I decided to do this last minute. Um, I wanted to do it on the day that we won the national championship. Um, so for those younger fans, I hope it painted a little bit of a picture going back so far. And for the fans that did live through it, I, I hope it brought up some good memories. I hope it brought up some similar memories. Um, and, you know, who knows what the future holds. I'm, I, I don't expect that to happen. I think um, moments like that, they don't happen often. If they happen once, you're lucky. And we are very lucky. And uh, we owe a lot. The city owes a lot to Tarkanian, to the team, to Timmy Gergerich, to Ron Gangel, to, to working team. To, I, I'm not going to start naming names because I won't stop. But they gave a little city that was known for one thing, gambling, something so much more than that. I mean, they really did. They, they galvanized a community that is more of a melting pot than probably any other city. I mean, we, we, every, there's no Las Vegans. Everybody's from somewhere else. And, uh, you know, there's so many different walks of lives. And, and, and to come together as one, I mean, engulf the entire city. Wow. Uh, I'll always be grateful. And it's a portion of the reason why I've remained loyal to the rebels. They gave me a lot. And it was so much more than the national championship that they gave me and so many others. Um, it was more than that. The watching them build and watching them grow and watching it culminate with a national championship was a thing of beauty. And that happened on April 2nd, in 1990, it's a date that I'll always remember and one I'll always be grateful for. Anyway, I, I hope some people, you know, that listen to this got something out of it. Um, if not, yeah, I understand that too, and that's fine by me. Um, for those that do, enjoy it and give it a listen and be safe, be careful. Um, really, I mean, take your time, be smart get through this thing things will get better and um i don't know when we'll be back on again um with the separation i can't really do these things solo it's i learned that it's kind of a pain in the butt to do these things solo um but got through it and it only took two and a half hours dear god so i'll sign off for now and uh thank you for listening take care i paid my dues time after My sentence, but committed no crime and bad mistakes.